Thank you for tuning into the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. This is always one of my favorite podcasts of the year. I get to talk with my good buddy, Garrett Fike. That's the last time you'll hear me say his first name for this whole episode, unless I call him Gary. You know what? I don't think we ever told the listeners. I've always said that we call you Gary, but we never like really told people how you got the name Gary. I want to give like the... Jake, you can pitch in here because you were a yeah, part of this. Yeah, Jake, story. help me out here because I don't even really remember uh, we were the down full in story. Camp Manitoumi. And we had a high school, about, right? Yeah, we were high back school. in high school days. Right after I high think school, we just graduated. I think, yeah, this the summer after graduation. And driving a, a dump truck with no brakes, something like that. No, I had the dump truck that had no brakes, but Gary had this other dump truck, and we were getting a load of gravel to dump at this playground because we were helping a church camp uh, fix up their playground and make some trails and stuff for them. And so Gary had to go to the rock quarry to get some gravel, and I'll let him pick it up from there. Yeah, I don't. I mean, went to the rock quarry, found found some pea gravel, picked it up, and I don't know if the, did they write it on the ticket. It was a check in station, wasn't it? The lady, the lady asked you for your name or something. Yeah, and so is that work? <laughs> yeah, so I this like this like battle battle hardened lady who's yelling at truckers all day, <laughs> having huge diesel engines going right in your eardrums all day long. <laughs> My name's Garrett. <laughs> What, Gary? You know, as if like a 17-year-old kid is actually named Gary. (laughs) (laughs) If your name is Gary and you're out there, I'm pretty sure your name did not become Gary until you're at least 41. (laughs) There's just no one that was a little kid and their name was Gary. Yeah. But no, that's how that's the legend of Gary. But we also call him Fike all the time. That's how I first learned who he was, was was Fike, and uh, Siri on my phone knows him as Feek. Yeah, so as do I... all the telemarketers as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've had plenty of great laughs. In fact, the number one laugh we have shared with good old Gary is clear back on episode 13. You can hear the, uh, gr- the most unfortunate story for Gary. <laughs> he knows the episode. The most me. fortunate story for the rest of us. <laughs> about his uh, leaky waders. But, uh, no, we've had a lot of great laughs with Gary through the years. Um, I'm just kind of his friend by proxy. Uh, Jake is really his best friend, and uh, I get a benefit from that. Uh, Gary is, is definitely one of my one of my, uh, my close friends, though. And uh, we, we've had a lot of good memories through the years, but Jake and Gary have had more. And... Um, <clears throat> We're here tonight. This is actually a live podcast. You'll hear chairs squeaking. I'm not going to do a lot of editing because I'm going to drop this episode tomorrow. So this baby's oh. hot off the press. But uh, you're going to hear the story tonight about Jake and Gary's most recent adventure. They went up to North Dakota, where Gary used to live, and uh, did some wide open prairie country, spot and stock, uh, mule and whitetail mule deer and whitetail hunting with uh, traditional art, archery equipment. And so uh, they're going to tell that story, but, um, you know, I think we just need to catch up with our good buddy Gary and 
our sometimes co-host Jake, our, our very part-time co-host Jake, <laughs> yeah. uh, you guys haven't heard from in a, quite a few episodes. Every other six months or so. <laughs> yeah, he he uh, <laughs> he rears his uh, head every six months or so. To, this uh, is this is my up. third podcast, so maybe I've had. I don't know. You may have been on. <laughs> this might be number four for you, buddy. Is it four already? <clears throat> it's it's up there because you've done. It's, that's you did a whitetail. You did a whitetail one first. That was the first one. We did one last year on mushroom season and turkey hunting, or a couple years. ago. Yeah, we did yeah. one a couple years ago on. That's when we came up with the uh, what was it, the triple crown? Yeah, where you have to find a shed, shoot a turkey, and find some morels all in one day. Yep. And uh, I think you did one last year too on something. I don't remember. I think it was another whitetail or shed hunting or something. Yep. Could have been, could have been, but no. Thanks for, thanks for having me on again. It's always good to get on here and chat with you, and it's going to be really enjoyable tonight. Tonight to have Jake on here too, and we're excited to mm-hmm. visit uh, with you and your listeners about our North Dakota mule deer and, like I said, whitetail archery hunt. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I this is something that I've been advertising since you guys went back in September. We, oh, it's been something that that uh, I've been putting out there. Jake's told little bits and pieces of it, and past episodes um i think that was the last episode you were actually on Jake. yeah that i was, was actually one. searching for that episode on the truck but i ran out of a uh, preloaded podcast <laughs> episodes i was scrolling through that uh car play and i ran out yeah so if i think the last one jake was on was when and it has to do with this hunt that we're going to talk about tonight it was when he made it on the cover of united bow hunters of illinois right that's correct And uh, that was just a really cool thing. And, uh, you know, part of, I think it sums up the story well for how Jake and I got into hunting because it was Fike that took Jake on that hunt, Fike who took the picture, Fike who turned the picture in, and uh, Jake who gets featured, you know, our (laughs) hunting experience, as young as that experience is, is in is a real credit to you sharing it with us, Fike. And uh, there's no way I'd be looking for sheds or hunting deer or turkeys or bears even. You know, all the things that I've gotten to enjoy, pheasants, it all goes back to when you first, you know, helped kindle. And, and really, I've talked about this before. It's been there since I was born that I wanted to hunt. But, you know, when you go so long... So I never hunted until I was uh, 26, I think, was the first year that I hunted. And uh, uh, that's a long frame of time to, like, want to do something but not really get to do it or be around it. And uh, so your friendship helped keep that interest alive, especially for me. Um, I think Jake probably was a little more true to the outdoors for several years in there when I kind of, you know, threw in the towel on the outdoors. I had, I had, uh, given my life to the slack jaw TV watching, uh, <laughs> someday I'll retire Forged to a beach, fire. Uh, prescription for life. But, but, uh, no, it's, uh, really appreciate you Gary for how you've uh, helped us along the way through that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And those are some kind words and I appreciate that, but, Definitely just planted the seed, I, I, I suppose, and um, you guys really took the took the ball and ran with it, so don't discredit yourselves for that. Um, I really admire the fact that you guys really didn't grow up around it, but are such avid hunters and outdoors, but now, like like you said, Kent, you've been out hunting bears in, in Montana and, and doing things that I've 
never done before and i think it's i think it's awesome you know you, you were asking me earlier this evening how many sheds i was up to and i didn't even have the heart to tell you almost i'm only i'm sitting at three on the year you hey, know, that's you got, all right you got 12 so look at that i mean you're smoking me in that category yeah, but so I, may, I may have been out more often plus definitely K- uh caleb yeah. gets us on some really good ground so well but it's still it takes uh takes a lot of effort you know to uh to find that many sheds, I don't care where you're at. You know, it definitely takes sure. effort and to, to go and do some of the other things that you guys have been doing and, and doing it the hard way, doing it the right way. You guys are ethical and, you know, very conservation and, you know, mindful of the critters that we're hunting and keeping that as a high priority and, you know, just understanding why we're out there and, uh, you know, what the true purpose of it all is. So I think that that's really cool. So I commend you guys for that. So glad to be just a small part of um, what kindled that interest and, and maybe kept you motivated to, to continue looking for opportunities to hunt and, and, uh, yeah, we appreciate that for sure. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, there's been many times, especially I remember when I first was getting into shed hunting, I was texting you all the time. Where should I look Gary? How does this place look? And, uh, you gave me my first big tip, my first shed hunting trajectory changing tip. You're, I said, yeah, I'm going to go here and look at this timber and I think what you said was, I don't find many sheds in the timber. I'm like, oh, you don't? Where do you look? And you're like, I look for grassy areas near a feeding area or a food source. And as soon as I, as soon as you taught me that, I think I went shed hunting a few hours after you sent me that text. And uh, I found a shed and in a spot exactly like what you talked about. And I was like, all right, this works. And, uh, of course, there's more refinement that goes into that. You know, you want to look in the right grassy spots near the right type of food source. But, you know, little little stories like that. But I thought there's two two interesting stories that go back to how Fike helped us. One I don't know much about other than that it happened. And that is when you and Jake went out turkey hunting. Is that when you guys were in high school? I had I to have so. been. I mean, we had our driver's licenses, but we, yeah, we yeah. were probably juniors, juniors maybe seniors, seniors in high school. Mm-hmm. We so were young. Tell the story. Let's hear what, what went down. Did you shoot a turkey? When no, no, no we, turkey that day. we heard a lot. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember now. I remember, yeah, we got up real early. We drove out there. Um, that was down on on a farm that I've hunted for a lot of years in yeah. Warren County. Yep, and it was it was late season. It was probably fourth or fifth season, so a lot of foliage on um, gets light early. So it's it, that farm's a little ways away. So it was definitely an early morning and, mm-hmm. and a decent hike back in there. But mm-hmm. yeah, I remember I never experienced it before. And you had this hoot owl call and every time you did it you could hear him get a shot gobble, gobble off that yep. and That's so cool. it was yeah it was really cool you could hear them all around us but we just never had any come around did we even have a gun with us we, we did even, okay we were hunting i remember we sat up next to this tree that had barbed wire sticking out of it and I was like, yeah. man, something's poking my back. <laughs> Sun <laughs> comes up and like, oh that's why <laughs> i know that exact tree it's a giant oak mm-hmm. tree yeah, yeah. There's there's old fence that's the trees kind of grown around over the years and yeah, that's cool. just embedded into it. But mm-hmm. I do remember we heard a bunch of goblin that day. Mm-hmm. But I don't. We didn't hunt until one o'clock or anything. I mean, I no. think we were probably out of there by mid morning. And yeah, we went. We might and have had moved a blind or something. I think after that could have been. I feel like maybe there was something else that we needed to get back home and didn't have a uh, the whole day. But it was it was a good time mm-hmm. and it was 
it's always fun to be out there in the spring woods yeah. listening to the turkeys gobble and it's fun to mm-hmm. to introduce people to that it's, yeah that's awesome, awesome. Yeah. that's really cool now gary do you have a good uh natural voice owl hoot i do not no i got a, <laughs> a buddy my really good buddy will he lives down around macomb area now he can he can hoot out with his voice just perfectly. <laughs> it's impressive. It sounds, you know, it sounds way better than that hoot owl call that you remember. That's people so on, cool. Jake. I love it, how people could do that. He had to work at it. I mean, it didn't come naturally to him, but I remember <laughs> it's been probably seven or eight years ago. He was working on it. Does he have and, to use uh, his hands or it's just all his mouth? No, it's just all his mouth. He can use his hands to kind of make it sound you know, a little bit different, a little mm-hmm. holler, whatever, but, uh, what, yeah, about, just what, his voice. what about any turkey noises? Can you do any turkey noises? Like any <laughs> Not purr, well. I'm purr, jealous. Any clucking or, or purring or yeah. anything? No. No. <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> yeah. a, little, a little yelp in there. Yeah, little yelp somewhere in there maybe. No, I definitely, uh, I I use the calls and I, I can't use my voice, but I, I wish I could. I don't do you know use a mouth call when you turkey hunt? Yeah. Yeah, mouth call is what I use majority of the time. If I'm not using a mouth call, I'm usually using a, a slate call or a okay. pot peg call, whatever you want to call it. Is but, it game-changing when you can figure out that mouth call just because your hands aren't occupied then? Yep, and that, I feel like I can... just that much more movement to go to the gun and yeah. be undetected? Yep, and if you can figure them out, which I'm not an excellent caller with the diaphragm calls either, but I can get by. But uh, the guys that are good at it, I think that the mouth call probably sounds as as good or better than any of the other calls that are out there mm. available to use yeah i've I've always intended to start messing around with a mouth call but for whatever reason i've just never never committed to doing it i should i, I just have one of those little box calls with like the chalk like the two-face call or whatever yep, yep. And those things sound good oh but, yeah those are good know. calls especially those tend to be a little bit higher frequency calls and they work really well especially on windy days or if you're trying to call to a turkey oh, a little hot tip in there yeah you know maybe <laughs> several hundred yards away long ways away but uh so i always usually keep a box call with me but i don't use it too often because most of my calls are really soft sure pretty quiet stuff but what's your tip for keeping that box call from <laughs> squeaking and scratching your whole way hiking in i have it you wrapped up rub- with a couple rubber bands that's a good idea yeah <laughs> <laughs> yep, a couple rubber bands around it just to keep it from squawking when you're walking around. <laughs> squawking while you're walking. Yeah. There's honestly a lot of times I probably don't have a box call with me just because of that reason. But if it is, there'll be one in the truck in case I, I need one. Sure. You know, if the conditions call for it. But if it's not going to be windy, I'm probably just going to leave it back at the truck. But there's other guys that they won't leave without it. They love them. So teach their own. Sure. I like the slate calls and mouth calls. I'm a terrible turkey hunter. I've gotten, and I always put this little qualifier in there just to to be fair with with saying that. The, I think I've gone turkey hunting maybe five times in my life. One of those times, I think I went by myself. Every other time, I've taken Jonas and my dad with me, and we all cram into this blind, and uh, there's probably some squawking and walking going on, and. <laughs> And, uh, you know, we're getting the decoy set up and everything. And uh, I definitely bite off more than I can chew with that, you know. But it's a fun tradition. I'll do it again this year. But I'm starting to learn, at least I'm perceiving, that so much of turkey hunting is 
you got to pre-scout, right? You got to know where birds are hanging out before. You can't just be like, oh, I'm going to go to my normal deer hunting property and hopefully it's dual purpose. You know, hopefully there's going to be some turkeys hanging out in those deer woods. You Do you basically, when you're going to go turkey hunting, do you spend like a day or two driving around trying to locate some birds? And then hopefully it's on one of the properties you already do have hunting permission on. If not, you might go ask. I mean, what, like, how do you even have a prayer of of getting on some turkeys because with deer i feel like literally during deer season any farm that's got a couple acres of timber like in october there's going to be at least one deer on that farm but turkeys it's not that way yeah you're absolutely right not every farm is going to be a good turkey hunting farm some farms just turkeys are not there some farms they might be there in the winter or the fall but they're not there during the spring season um so i do a lot of driving around Uh, i've started already just you know i'll get up leave early before work and and i'll kind of take some gravel roads around looking for turkeys uh before i have to head into the office and i'll continue to do that up until turkey season starts so if i'm struggling like with over the last couple three years some of the bird numbers on our farms have not been as high as what they used to be in past years so i have Mm -hmm. branched out found a couple other properties that i can that I can, I've gained access to. Um, cause like you said, just not every farm is going to be a good farm for hunting turkeys. Sure. Some of them are going to have, especially early in the season, you might be able to find a property that's just loaded with turkeys toward the end of the season. They're, they're going to be a little bit more spread out, smaller groups of turkeys. Um, you got a better chance of finding them on more properties then, but probably not as, as many numbers of turkeys per property, but, uh, turkey hunting, a lot of times you have a little better chance at gaining access than, than deer hunting. People don't take it quite oh, as seriously. Really? And yeah, I, I don't think there's as many turkey hunters out there as there are deer hunters. There's a P- lot of people. Plus it's far enough away from deer season, right? It yeah, is, you know, so up. by that time, you know, guys, they've already picked up the sheds there for the year. If that's, if they're into that and uh, they're not worried about bumping deer around that, mm-hmm. you know, they're just starting to grow their antlers again and, does haven't even dropped fawns for the most part yeah, that's yet a good so point. there's usually opportunities to gain some access in there but as we really get close to season i'll start to spend some mornings actually out scouting on the particular farms that i want to be on and just listen to confirming where they're roosting at they generally roost in the same area a lot of times even the same trees from year to year mm-hmm. um, and they'll usually fly down in similar places but i'll just kind of confirm that because sometimes they'll get into a little bit i wouldn't call it a pattern but sometimes they might fly to a fly down to a certain area with more consistency than another area but they can be frustrating because you can watch them do the same thing for three mornings in a row leading up to opening day or whenever your season starts and the day that that opens up you might go in there and they go the opposite direction you just never know turkeys are kind of a funny bird yeah they'll humble you quick yeah yeah I, i I think I need to, so we have one family farm that has some turkeys, not a ton of turkeys. Sometimes, you know, I'd even say quite a few turkeys, but, but, uh, never a ton. Like, uh, maybe the most I think I've seen around is maybe like five birds. I've had some trail camera pictures that show maybe close to 10 birds, but, but, uh, I don't think we ever have like, you know, 20, 30 birds on that farm. And it's a sizable farm. Sure. Some years you won't even see any. Um, 
uh, I'd say probably on average though around that three to five number. And so I'm just thinking, you know, if I really want to be able to get to the point where I can harvest a turkey, I'm going to have to try and gain some additional access. I actually learned something recently, so this still shows how new of a hunter I am. <laughs> I was out walking a timber with uh, Judd McCollum, uh, with Working Class Bow Hunter, and uh, he pointed out to me some turkey scratches on the ground. And, you know, as a shed hunter, I've seen that. A million times i guess i always just thought oh that's just where deer were kind of rooting around at something and it made total sense after he said that in fact we had seen the turkeys over in that area before we got there and uh so that being said when you're shed hunting you know everyone's thinking of deer scouting while they're shed hunting i run into turkeys while i'm shed hunting fairly often that just happened to me uh um the last time i went out on a tuesday evening but are you also keep an eye out for scratching and any other signs for turkey uh like do you if you see like a big you know dead giant tree or you're like that's ah, a roosting tree i mean what do you do you put any of that turkey scouting into shed hunting oh yeah absolutely i'm always keeping an eye out for turkey sign while i'm out there doing my shed hunting and and deer scouting it's i i try to keep tabs on all that as best as, as best i can um a lot of times you will see the scratchings and that's where they're they're moving those leaves out of the way so they can get down to different seeds. They like to eat acorns, uh, any sort of grubs, anything like that that they might find. That's all part of their diet. They eat a you know a really wide variety of things, but you'll see where those scratches are around. A lot of times you'll get into, you know, the listeners can't see it, but something the size of this room, you, you know, um, and there'll be, you're not going to see a great big area that's usually scratched out, I guess. That's the size. You'll see it sure. like the size of a, this card table or smaller typically. Sure. And there'll be multiple of those. There might be a dozen, 20, 30 of those little scratching areas where one turkey went in, moved those leaves out of the way, and it's in, you know, a two or three foot diameter type sure. of a circle. But, uh, yeah, I'm always trying to keep tabs on that and then looking for droppings too. Um, mm-hmm. Just take a note of those types of things. If, if there's an area where, um, I know I might set up, I might go ahead and clean out the spot this time of the year. That's one thing that I always like to do when I turkey hunt is if there's any leaves that are right there around where I'm going to be sitting or any little pieces of bark or any brush, I get all that stuff out of the way. So you're just got, you're sitting on bare ground and it's not going to make any noise. Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll go through with my boot and I'll just clean out a lot of those spots this time of year too. If it's going to be a tree that I might be sitting down mm-hmm. at, you know, here in another few weeks. Yeah. Those are good tips and, uh, definitely a good way to make use of that, of that time as dual purpose, but you're a shed head like <laughs> I am. So you're really looking for sheds the whole time. Yep. Sheds. And I, I was telling Jake here recently too, um, no, don't focus as much on sheds as what I probably used to focusing just probably more, more on scouting, um, and less on sheds. And there's, there's a few properties that I, that I lost access to that I had permission to, to shed hunt, but not hunt type of thing. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, so those were always areas that I devoted some time to that I don't have anymore. And sure. I've kind of shifted more toward, you know, fewer sheds, but maybe higher quality of scouting because it yeah. is to your point earlier, it's hard to do it all and to do it oh, all well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if I really am trying to pick apart an area where I want to, to set up a, a stand or, you know, try to find the best tree in that particular area, I go in there with 
nothing else on my mind. Like sure. I, I might spend an hour, you know, just Looking walking around all within, yeah, like f- within 40, 50 yards of a certain area. I mean, just trying to find that tree. Um, so in those kind of situations, I'm kind of just one dimensional focused on that. Not really looking for sheds or doing the Turkey scouting, but if I'm just out for a good, good walk, a lot of times, you know, dad and I, Jake, you do the same thing. We'll take our stick bows and we'll do what they call stump shooting or some people call it roving where you just pick out leaves or little pieces of bark or mm-hmm. what, whatever that catches your eye that you want to try to shoot. And, um, we do, we do that just kind of leapfrog our way through the timber from shot to shot. So yeah, that's I don't know. Cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a lot of fun and it, it's good practice. Um, but yeah, just Maybe not as focused on sheds as what I used to be, but come I'll, on, Gary, get back in the sheds. I know, buddy. I love it. <laughs> I love it. There's nothing like picking up picking up a fresh shed. That's for sure. But yeah, no, I yeah, I I uh, I've actually bashed on people like you. Just what you said right there recently, Gary. How people will be oh. like, oh, I'm not out here for the sheds. I'm just out here, and I. And, but you you put my you put. You, you added a new dimension I hadn't really considered, which is true because I've experienced this. But the way I always perceive it is they're like, yeah, I'm out here looking for rub lines. It's like, okay, what are you doing? Counting up to 85 rubs? Boy, <laughs> I guess there's a buck in here. Yeah. <laughs> he hangs out. Over. But that's a good point when you talk about, you know, you're trying to really figure it, like especially wind. How How is right. the wind moving through this timber? Or, uh, you know, finding a tree that's the right diameter, has got enough cover on there, gets you in an advantageous spot with the wind. Um, you can actually fit a stand on there so that you have plenty of room to draw and, you know, from the right direction and everything. That's a, that's a really good point because there are times when I'm shed hunting and, and I know I'm in a good spot, like if I were ever to hunt this farm, um, it's like, man, I should mark this tree. And sometimes I'll dig out Spartan Forge and I'll drop a pen and, and you know, be responsible. <laughs> but usually I don't want to sit there and be like, okay, this does seem like a good spot, but what's the axis like? You know, if the axis is terrible, then it doesn't matter if it's a good spot, you know, because you're probably, unless you're going to pull a Bill Winky and bring your sleeping bag out there one night and sleep under a pile of leaves, you know, you're not going to, you're, you're probably not going to be able to hunt that spot. But if you're really focused on scouting instead of sheds, then you're going to piece that together. You're going to say, no, actually I could access from over here. If I had this wind, you know, in the evening or in the morning, you know, but whereas when you're focused on sheds you're just like nah get me to the next spot i didn't find a shed here and so but i'll never i'll probably never change that way either oh just because i'm I'm a i'm I'm addicted to shed hunting yeah and it's probably i've i've gotten more that way the more into stick bows that i've got which i've always been into stick bows but really focused on it tried focusing on it more uh here the last few years and that requires a whole different level of you know, detail, right? Just, yeah. <laughs> uh, like you're not commitment to, to the process. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you don't tree options are a lot smaller. Tree options are very limited. Um, so all those things, you know, I'm walking, walking paths, trying to figure out where I, I also like to be a lot lower. So it's important to me to know where the deer is going to be at in relation to where that tree is going to be. What are they looking at? Where, you know, the way the topography runs, what are they going to be seeing? If I'm only 10 or 12 foot up in a tree, 
you know, it just it requires some extra attention to detail on oh, making yeah. sure all those things are going to be set up in a way that you can still have some success. Because you sure. want to get close to them, but you don't want to give up a whole bunch. But right. and uh, it's tough enough just being, you know, with the compound trying to get within thirty yards. You know, a lot of times we're trying to get in, you know, even within twenty, twenty-five yards. Um, but when you're trying to figure out like where yeah. they're gonna step, fifteen. So is yards that away, is that why you're going with that lower height? Is because you want that more gradual shot angle. It's I, it's more of a personal thing for me. I think I just I feel more comfortable. I feel like I'm a better shot when I'm sure. lower in the tree. Um, those bows are also really long. I mean, Jake and I are each shooting. Jake's bow is a 60 inch bow. Mm-hmm. Bow I'm shooting currently is a 60. What I went took to North Dakota and what I've shot in the past is a 62. So when you're shooting 10 or 15 yards away from the base of your tree and you got a 60 plus inch bow that limb's coming back down yeah that lower limb of your bow's coming back into the tree it's coming back down into your legs it's the angles are tough yeah and uh it really shortens your draw length up too when you're really close and you know a steep angle down it, it can be challenging so i feel like i'm a better shot if i'm you know under 15 feet mm-hmm. up in the tree and uh you know, they're out there in that 10 or 15 yards. It's a less steep of a shot angle, and I just feel more comfortable. So with being more comfortable, I think I'm a better shot too. So, Now, are, are you super mobile? I mean, We're going to talk about the North Dakota deer hunting here at some <laughs> yeah. point, but this is, it's just fun having this conversation flow. Now, are you, so are you like packing uh, portable sticks with you, or are you doing all pre-hung sticks with, up. with a hang-on? Yeah, leading up to, you know, I haven't, I haven't done the mobile setup yet. Now I I've done hanging hunts before. I don't have a dedicated hanging hunt system. Sure. I'd like to get to that point. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of benefit. You gonna to go that. full saddle, buddy? I don't know about the saddle. I'm not sure. I think I think I would still rather have you know two or three you know sticks and uh and a standard platform you know yeah. versus the saddle but i've never hunted out of saddle so i can't really say for sure some guys love them i aaron, just aaron snyder had the best thing to say about it i don't want to walk around with a diaper on <laughs> <laughs> yep yep but no i i, I don't yeah, know i i i think a saddle could be incredibly useful like if you could get it down to a point where you you weren't just convincing yourself that you're comfortable and you actually are comfortable. This is comfortable, you know, like standing there all day sure. with your toes jammed into the front of your boots and and uh, you know Oof. your legs not falling asleep from circulation being cut off. You know, I I, I got to think that a lot of people that use saddles are in that position because they they haven't quite figured out. But then there's other guys like uh, Mark Kenyon's a big saddle guy. Well, he hunts enough days a year that if it wasn't good, he wouldn't still be using one. So he's got it figured out. You know what Man, I mean? And just, I think if you could get to that point, it would be one of the most invaluable tools to a, a whitetail hunter. I th- I think you're right. I'd, I probably need to start uh, experimenting with it, um, especially like Jake was saying earlier. I mean, the trees that we're climbing into when we're hunting with these stick bows, we have really limited options. So if the tree's in the right spot, you got to be able to figure out how to make it work. And that can be challenging when you're trying to hang a stand in there. But 
I would imagine probably with a saddle that would maybe open up some some opportunities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, gives you the ability to try to keep that the trunk of the tree in between you and the deer as they're you yeah. know coming through. You might be able to kind of almost swing around the tree or yeah. move around the tree. I've heard of some guys, and I think it would work well that that like to ground hunt, but they want to get off the ground just a little bit. They'll use saddles with their oh, feet on okay, the ground. Yeah. And it just gives them something to lean back into and get a little bit lower, sure. but not be sitting flat on the ground. Yeah, and so with something like that, you know, if you got wore out, you could just stand up you, on the yeah, ground. Yeah, that's you huge for bow hunting because when you get stiff like that from sitting on the ground and you have to like kind of work yourself up to your knees or something to get a shot off, that's yeah, that's usually that just makes things 10 times more challenging to not get busted. So that's a great point. I never yeah. thought of it that way. Mostly all preset pre-hung sets and that's another reason you know i'm I'm focusing on that this time of the year and i've been doing more fishing too here the last few years than what i ever used to. don't get so. them started we'll never get to the oh, yeah, that's right. Let's, we won't go down that that rabbit hole tonight but uh yeah the more stand work i can get done this time of year i mean i'll be honest that's all i've really been focused on the last month six weeks cutting lanes it hasn't been like looking for sheds it's been getting stuff Gary, that's breaking ready. my heart i know buddy. it I you're know breaking it. my heart hey, hey, more, for you. <laughs> more for you right <laughs> well you just dropped me some pins buddy and i'll go oh, find them for you. <laughs> now you're getting out of hand now that's where i draw the line i'm always looking but uh yeah it most everything's pre-hung and uh i try to do as much of that stuff this time of the year as i can it's just it's easier if you gotta use a four-wheeler or pickup truck you know the ground's froze you can get back into places there's no crops to work around it's obviously cooler yeah don't have to be sweating like a dog getting mosquitoes i'll go back in and i'll finish things out and get everything trimmed up nice and in uh july or august but sure all the heavy lifting stuff i try to get as much of that done this time of year as, as possible and i've definitely been hunting off the ground a lot more here in the last few years as well um yeah, I fun. really enjoy that. I mean, it's, we've talked about this. It's, yeah. it's a whole different level of intensity. I don't care what kind of weapon you got in your hand. I don't care if you're gun hunting, compound, yeah. stick bow. I don't, it doesn't matter. It's right it's, there. <laughs> I mean, when you're right there, eye level with them, it's, it's, uh, it's different. So I think that, I cool. think that was one of the things that helped Jake and me grow as deer hunters we didn't own any tree stands for years i mean when you're starting out hunting there is so much gear to buy you can't buy it all you know and so when you don't grow up already having tree stands in place like when i think of what my kids will have when they get into hunting compared to what i had it their trajectory they should be way better hunters if they take it seriously you know they should be way better hunters than i am when by the time they're my age but the not having tree stands, uh, Jake, you can weigh in on this. Jake's still here. He hasn't fallen asleep. Uh, the not having tree stands, I think, really helped us because you had to be careful. Although when Jake killed his first deer, that was the most like not careful thing ever. Uh, it's all skill. Yeah, right. We were uh, we were camped out on this ridge where where we see. You're, you're almost guaranteed to see deer there in the morning and uh in the evening it was a muzzleloader hunt and we weren't seeing anything by like 8 30 <laughs> we and it was near. like negative 40 <laughs> it was pretty cold 
And we're like, all right, let's get up and let's walk down to our other blind. We built a little like bale blind, the mouse house. And uh, we're walking down there and we walk and we almost run into these two does that like just the way the ridge of the hill was like you didn't see each other till you're 10 yards apart. And we just hit the deck and Jake got his shot off and shoots this doe at 10 yards. But aside from that, we did a lot of hunting from the ground. And we still do. Uh, this year, The kind of our new tradition is opening weekend, we we get together and go to this public piece and uh, canoe in and uh, hunt in this uh, clearing. And uh, that's all from the ground. And Jake, one year passed. Uh, half rack already a half rack on like first weekend of October that little guy was fighting <laughs> or got hit by a car or something maybe I don't know <laughs> but uh, Jake passed him at like what was it 15 yards yeah he was really close and that was he was hunting with a compound then too so he definitely could have smoked that deer mm-hmm. and then uh, this year he crawled we had a couple deer definitely that doe that walked behind us was in bow range and then when yeah. we walked in on so that, that was one, probably forty yards away, maybe we walked in on that one buck right away too. He was pushing bow range too, and then Jake creeped in to forty with his did a little spot and stock. You know, like those skills you learn doing that set you up for when you do have the equipment. Then when you can be up, when you can choose a tree, and you know get in that elevated position, sit right on a trail or something. I think uh, everyone should have a little bit of ground hunting planned for each season because it helps keep those those skills sharp you know even if you are like you said even if you are using a in fact i'd say especially if you're using a gun or a muzzleloader because with an arrow and fike you're the one that taught me this point when you shoot a deer at the same level you're hurting yourself with your blood trail a little bit because it takes a while for that. You don't have that downward, you know, exit Drain. wound where blood's going to be dripping out of the bottom of the deer. You got to wait for that thing to tank up in its cavity and start spilling out the sides to have like a heavy blood trail. So that could that could mean that your your blood trail doesn't start for, you know, like becoming obvious for 20, 25 yards before that things really, if you got a really good shot. Sometimes and especially even. if you got like a liver shot or something. Yep. Now you're talking very challenging circumstances. So when you're hunting from the ground with a bow, I think there's some other serious challenges there, but definitely worthwhile stretching yourself in that way, which is a perfect transition to what you guys were doing in North Dakota. <laughs> I All, segue. There's no trees in North Dakota. Yeah. You guys were, uh, you guys were hunting, uh, what is Northwest? North Dakota? I'd say west central. West central. About cent- center in the state. And about as far west as you can get, right along the Montana border. Mm-hmm. Sure. So not too far from the, what do they call that, the Badlands of North Dakota or something like that? Yep. Yeah, right, in, right in there. Yep. I'd Theodore, say that's... Theodore Roosevelt National Park kind of in that neck of the woods, isn't yep. it? Yeah, it is. So there's, there's two units of the Theodore Roosevelt National Parks, north unit and south unit. We are actually in between the two units. Okay. There, those units are probably forty or fifty miles apart, I would say, and we were somewhere in between somewhere in them. There. 
Oh, wow. I didn't realize that was so destroying. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you feel like if, if anyone thinks, oh, you guys are spot burning, that's a super vast area. So good luck. <laughs> yeah, really oh, big. yeah. Good luck. It's, <laughs> yeah, we, it's uh, not going to be too hard to be it's pretty like spot yeah, burning the ocean. Those. Yeah, I, yeah caught exactly. a, I caught a fish in the Atlantic Ocean once. <laughs> yeah. And we, <laughs> off the tip of Florida. <laughs> we barely scratched the surface oh, yeah. on it. So, yeah. I, possibilities are endless out there. I looked it up just to remind myself before we did this podcast, but we were hunting in the Little Missouri National Grassland, which is in North and South Dakota, and it's over a million acres altogether between the two states, and the majority of it is in North Dakota, so uh, it's all public, and uh, it's, I mean, it's it's vast. It's incredibly vast. There's a ton of opportunity out there. Sure. Yeah, and uh, I think that right there is the key to hunting out west the public access here in uh the illawa part of the world not a lot of public land especially i know illinois has some pretty big public areas but especially in this part of illinois where we're at now there's very limited public hunting access iowa has quite a few area, uh, public areas in this part of the, the country uh, if you go on the other side of the Mississippi River, there's quite a few, um, but not for Illinois. And so when you are used to living in those circumstances and you go out west, it's just like mine, my, my, I can yeah, go. Yeah, you can go over here. A million acres. And yeah, North Dakota too. You can go on private land too that's not posted, which is really cool. We took advantage of that one day. Yeah, oh, just really? to cross through there. Yeah. Now, when you did that, did you guys like try and meet the landowner or something first or? Nope. Not in in that situation. I know when I was living up there, uh, I always tried to make sure I got in contact with the landowner before I hunted anything, just because I was used to the rules here in Illinois. And a lot of times the the landowners that I asked, they were pretty surprised that I even took the time to to ask them that if they don't post it, that's them saying, I don't mm-hmm. care. You know, you go on there, do your thing. You have um, to be a little careful though, because they can post it online now. That's right. Where you have to check. Yeah. On, but on X or whatever you use, it shows right up. Yep. And it's yep. kind of weird out there. There'll be a whole hundreds of acres of thousands of acres of public, and then there's one little hundred acre square in the middle of all that. I don't know how it works yeah. out, but so you have to cross that or whatever. And there's usually some, some landlocked public, stuff. is what you're saying. There is some. There's there's some private that's, that's like landlocked by public. Oh, that's really? landlocked by public. It's exactly. really strange. But do they usually post those then? Most of them were, but not all of them. Not all. You know, we we went across one, which we never really we weren't hunting was, on it. Yeah. It was more just to get to where we wanted to go. That buck mm-hmm. had bedded on public ground, but in order to get the wind in our favor, we had to belly out into some private, and it wasn't electronically posted, and we looked. I mean, we did our due diligence. Sure. There was no posted signs anywhere. And if it's not relatively obvious, I'm, I'm not sure what the rules are, but they have to have posted signs every so often. Yeah. Every so, you know. It's pretty close. Like, distance. What's it, what, yeah. You'd see one to the next probably. Especially out there. Mm-hmm. You'd be able to see a posted sign. But so, yeah, to Jake's point, in North Dakota, at least at this point, you got to do your homework. You got to check the electronic postings. But yeah, if it's if it's not posted physically or electronically, you can go on there. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. A totally different paradigm around here. My wife is from New England, 
And there's a few states up that way that have that same law. Uh, New Hampshire is that way, where unless it's posted, and I think that is not yet gone to the electronic thing. I think it's still, you know, you got to have the purple paint or an actual sign. So physical posting. Um, Maine, I think, might be the same way, and I'm not sure about Vermont, but um, it's it's an interesting model for sure. And honestly... Mm-hmm. I would I would love to see that in every state, because um, uh, the fact remains it's still at the control of the landowner. Mm-hmm. They can post it, you know, and uh, imagine what that would open up here in the Midwest for hunting opportunities, or or uh, even like shed hunting opportunities. You know, mm-hmm. where it would make things difficult is if you had worked hard to get hunting permission on someone's farm and then they didn't care about posting it, that's when yeah. it, that's the guy who gets burned in that deal. You yeah. know what I mean? I it's like, it's like, Oh, you know, I've made, built this relationship. I worked up my courage yep. and then all of a sudden the law switches. Just... Now anybody can just be there. And it was, yeah. your, it know. would also be really challenging during our firearm seasons. You take Illinois, mm, for example, yeah, I mean, point. we've got, our opening weekend of firearm season is three days. Two weeks later, it's four days. If if that was the rule here in Illinois, there would still be a limited amount of properties that were not posted, and the amount of people that would try to be get trying to get on that non-posted ground to hunt, it'd be that's overrun, good. and you'd be opening up opportunities for there to be some sort of accident. Yeah, that's hunter altercations. I mean, out there, there's. That you know, they like, don't have the human population. They don't have the human population, and they have a much, much greater supply of public land. Yeah, yeah that's true. And uh, and everybody's spread out. It's everything spread it. out. Everything spread out. So it's not so as Gary big doesn't, of a deal. Gary doesn't agree with my 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 pipe dream here. He doesn't. Want... I don't know if it's feasible here. I mean, it works out there, and it. Do you think you could do it limited. though with just like archery? Maybe like it could be archery only. I don't uh, know. Um. Because that is a good point you make about, especially with the, I don't know if people really do this much out west, deer drives. Like, that is a big part of gun hunting here in yeah, the Midwest. Think, it, that, it'd the be country's tough. really rugged. Yeah. <laughs> I have to drive it. It's rugged oh, and it's vast, vast and open. I mean, there's, there's, it'd be really hard to pinch them down. Mm-hmm. They sure. just hop to the next bowl. And... Yeah. And they'll cut across open country out there. I mean, that's all they got. So they don't. They don't think twice about leaving cover where our deer, they, you know, you really got to. Yeah. They usually typically don't want to leave that cover unless they absolutely have to take cross open field, but. Sure. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Uh, when I was up there, they didn't, uh, the electronic posting that wasn't a, in effect yet. Mm-hmm. That's just something that happened here within the last, last couple year of years. Too, yeah. And so it's trending. It's, they're going to become like Illinois before Illinois or Iowa becomes like them. I think, you know, going you think, electronic, you think that's that, just the next step and okay. everything yeah, that's private is yeah. going, it's going to be point. a no trespass state. Like you have to have permission or it has to be public just like it is in <clears throat> Illinois or Iowa before you can go on there. Yeah, that's, people, a, that's a good point. People unfortunately don't take care of things. I mean, there's been issues with stuff out there where people leave carcasses right next to the road, you know, on mm. private ground or they're leaving gates open and there's livestock out there. Yeah, all that over the is place. a big and, problem. You know, if you're not respecting the land that you're going on, I mean, the landowners get frustrated and, you know, it kind of ruins it for everybody, but that's why the, they're going that way. And 
I don't know, of the private that we looked at on Onyx, what do you think, Jake? I mean, what was the percentage? 90% probably. But what do you think, like, as far as uh, private posted versus non-posted? Oh, uh, yeah, I'd say probably 90%, it seemed like. Yeah. What was posted? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, really? So. so most people, once it became that easy to post yep. your your property, it's like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and do that. Yeah. Especially next to the public, just because they know mm-hmm. there's people there anyhow. So yeah. it, it seemed like it, but I didn't really key in on some of the other parts of the state. Yeah, that's, an, that's, in a, that's an interesting. That's an interesting thing. You know, I was so I've been at work. I can I have headphones in all day. I'm working around loud machines and stuff, and so I like to listen to podcasts and books. And Are I'm you one of those to, people that uses your headphones for ear protection? Don't you be joking? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I just turn up louder so I can hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they actually do help a little bit. I did have a set that was meant for that, like meant for ear protection and and uh, that, but then they fried, so now I just have regular like earbuds uh, that I use. But I'm going to, I've been procrastinating. I'm going to buy like some nice, you know, like OSHA certified deals. But anyway, the, the uh, where's it going? Oh, so I've been listening to this book on Daniel Boone. And I heard a great point today that deals with the pretty much the exact same thing that Gary's talking about here. So Daniel Boone, one of the jobs he had was he was a land surveyor of Kentucky. You know, all these people moving into the frontier states, right? And it's all just wild country in their minds, free for the taking, right? We know historically that Native Americans really... I guess in a way owned that land. They didn't really view land ownership quite the same as what we did. Uh, but certainly they had the, I guess maybe the better way to it is, or way to say it is they had the rights to that land, right? They were using it. They were depending on it. And then you have this whole, new paradigm sweeping across the country and taking it up. Well, part of that job, one of the common jobs was surveying that land off in a very European way. Like, Hey, I, I own this farm, you know? And so Dan, Daniel Boone, a lot of other guys, that was their job. They'd survey this. And when this was all brand new, it's kind of like when you guys probably got out of your truck in North Dakota and it's like all of this, you know, this is so vast. That's how they felt in States now that are very populated and so when they'd survey that land, the author was like, it didn't really matter when you were first selling Kentucky if you were off by a couple hundred yards in your survey or you were off by like a half acre or or whatever, right? It didn't it didn't really matter because because the, the area was so vast. And so when all these people start moving in there. Then everyone starts suing Daniel Boone and all these other surveyors. He's like, Hey, my, my, uh, you said this was my property. Now my neighbor says, uh, uh-uh, our lines are crossing. And so the idea became as you got more people, people wanted the more exact property boundaries. They wanted to really state clearly, this is mine. This is yours. And so I think the same thing applies, like you're saying, as 
you know, in these some of these states that are like the last to develop, like North Dakota. I mean, North Dakota is probably one of the most undeveloped states in our country. And that's what makes it a great place to hunt and, and fish. But as that happens, as we start to get more people expanding into these areas, um, especially after a lot of people started watching a certain uh, uh, TV series uh, <laughs> about living out west on vast pieces of land, uh, they... You know, all these people, there's like this movement to move into the West and, you know, people leaving, you know, some of the, like, like the West Coast cities or states as well, moving like into the Western Plains areas. I could definitely see some of that happening more often where people are Make it really hardlining. This is the property line. Absolutely not. Which, you know, could get us into another discussion on like leasing and stuff like that and what's going to happen with you know, like Montana, they have, they don't have that trespass law, right? But they have block management programs, you know, and we have some of that in Iowa called IHAP land where, you know, a private landowner can open their landowners. But it is interesting. And if, I, if there's a lesson in any of this is as these areas, as more people start using these areas, we better be ethical when we're using it or it is going to get closed and more of it's going to get posted and more of it's going to not be available to hunters. But that's really interesting that 90%, I would not have guessed it was that high. Yeah. I was surprised by it too. At least right there where we were at, you know, I don't know what the statistic is for the whole state. You might be able to to find How did it, how, what did it seem like? So you lived up there before that law changed. Did that seem like it went way up from when you were living there before, after they went to the electronic posting? Oh yeah. There's a ton of, I mean, I've looked back at some of the areas that I was hunting when I was up there when, and when I was up there, I was over in the Northeastern part of the state, Mm -hmm. primarily all privately owned. Um, There was very little ground that was posted. But it's it's lit up, you know, when you look at it on an electronic mm-hmm. map. I mean, of post electronically posted parcels so, of ground. So it already has taken effect. Yes. Big time. Yep. Yep. I would say, like, I'm not sure what the actual percentage would be across the whole state, um, but it's a significant amount. And they have some programs, like you were talking about, that IHAP in, in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got something in North Dakota called plots, which is private land open to sportsmen. Okay. It's very similar uh, here in Illinois. We have IRAP, which is Illinois Recreational Access Program. Okay. So, and that's a good program too, which we could talk about that more depth at another time. But essentially they incentivize landowners to do different mm-hmm. habitat management projects on their farm and uh, they subsidize them. And in return, the landowner allows the public yeah, to awesome. hunt on their ground so it's it's a it's a win-win for everybody it's a great program oh, great yeah. for the landowner great for the public to have access to a good good property great for the wildlife because they're improving the property but um they did have some of those programs but yeah i mean the main thing is if you're going to be taking advantage of some of those opportunities in those states to trespass on non-posted ground or to hunt plots or ihap or irap or whatever i mean you've got to you've got to respect the ground that you're on or if it's permission ground anything i mean if you want to have the ability to come back and, and utilize that that resource again. You got to take good care of it. Don't throw out your trash. Be mindful mm-hmm. of where you know you gut piles are left yeah. or situations like that. Clean up after yourself. Close close gates. Don't drive four wheeler pickups or something like that across soft ground. Um, probably in most instances, don't 
take a motorized vehicle across it, period, yeah. I would say. You know, yeah. just mm-hmm. uh, foot access only. Mm-hmm. Um, just be Absolutely. mindful and be smart. I mean, it's not, doesn't take rocket science. You know, a rocket scientist, just be be mindful of it and treat the property like you would want somebody to treat your property and you'll probably have a place to hunt in the future. Yeah, 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 very well said for sure. So let's go back to the hunt now. So you guys, it's good to have that background on how the gr- the ground is used and it breaks down and it sounds fairly typical other than that posting rule to what a Western hunting experience is. A lot of public land access, um, you know, very different from how things are here and even further east from here in most place in most cases. So when you like Jake, what was going through your mind the second you guys like were getting out of the truck and you're looking at the spot? Like describe the ecosystem a little bit. You know, what kind of vegetation were you looking mm-hmm. at? You know, what was the topography like? Yeah, so we were driving in. It was like it's a hundred degrees. It was hot. <laughs> oh, it was, yeah, like it was hot. Like you get out and it's like I experienced it in Arizona this summer where it's just like it's really dry, but it's like an oven. It's not humid, but it's just hot. And so we and when we're driving in, you're just in like uh just prairie, like rolling hills. You don't think anything of it and then you go two miles west and you're into the Badlands, which is really cool. It just drops off immediately. And you got all these canyons and everything. So it's really, really cool uh, topography. And so we pulled into there and it's like, man, are we going to get to the Badlands yet? And then all of a sudden it all opens up <laughs> and it's really cool. Um, were you seeing like any interesting critters? Uh, we were seeing like some non-game? antelope, I think, yep, when we were pronghorn. on the okay. highway. And uh, Do they have any bison, free-ranging bison up there? I'm no, there's, sure. there's some that's... We've seen some in the north unit of Theodore Roosevelt yeah. National Park when we visited there, but they're not. They're not free-ranging on the public land? No, they're not. No. Is, I mean, do you think that's intentional? Like, they're, they're worried people would try and poach them if they were around? Because, uh, I mean, it seems like if you're going to have free-ranging bison somewhere, a million acres of grass yeah. would be, they would keep, would be ideal for them. But, yeah, I don't know. They but, run a lot of cows out there is their okay, main thing. So they and have, it's all, like, free-range cows, so... That's you why turn your cows loose. And there's still landowners ag- had leasing permits on. Yeah, and on there's the- still agriculture right there. Like Jake said, it's such a stark con- stark contrast. I mean, we are going through some prairie like areas, but there's still farming going on. I mean, but there's sunflower production out there. There's a lot of uh, spring wheat that's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't see a whole lot for corn or soybeans, mm-hmm. but a, a lot of wheat. And canola, a lot of sunflowers. There, there is some canola. You got to get a little bit further north in the state. Okay. A little further north where we were at, and you'd find some canola. Um, but so, I mean, they go out if they were to get out in areas like that, they'd just devastate. Oh, you know, yeah. Those <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, no doubt about that. I don't know, but yeah, we did see some, but they're de- they're definitely not mm-hmm. free ranging. They're just any, inside any the elk or anything. No, we did have elk hunter in camp. Um, but we never ran into them, and so wait, what do you mean had... in camp? Uh, so we camped at a campground. It's just a real oh, okay. rustic campground. It's got a pit toilet and one of those wells that you have to pump four thousand times yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to get the water up from five hundred feet <laughs> surface. And uh, so there's I don't know maybe twenty campsites there. 
Okay. I think at most, yeah, I want to say might maybe even a little closer to 15. Mm-hmm. It's, there's not many sites. Yeah, it's pretty remote. Um, and, yeah, we just heard there's an elk hunter in camp. We never talked to him or anything. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, somebody else that we visited with said that uh, there was a guy in camp that was elk hunting. And mm-hmm. there's elk out in that area. My dad hunted out not too far from here. It was probably 2006, 2007, and and uh, him and the guy he was hunting with, they found some some elk sheds, and it was probably, I don't know, within 60 miles anyhow where Jake and I were hunting at. Okay, that's cool. And, and I should mention too, you know, Jake's describing what he saw when he went there. Um, this was the second time that I had seen this particular place. So like I said, I was over on the northeastern side of the state when I was living up there. This is about five and a half or six hours further west across the state. But I had made a, a trip to this exact same spot to do some hiking and, and shed hunting. That would have been back in 2019, spring of 19, I think. So okay. I'd, I'd been to this exact place before mm-hmm. and, and was a little bit familiar with it. That's, that's, that, that is interesting. I didn't realize that. I knew you'd obviously lived in North Dakota, but I didn't realize you had already kind of pre-scouted, you know, a couple mm-hmm. years prior. So that's, 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 that's actually a really good uh, insight there. And a good reminder, you know, sometimes you almost get those, like those big tease summer vacations, like, Oh, the family's going to go to Colorado this summer. And you're like, <laughs> can we delay this like two months? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you're like in prime hunting ground and you're like, this is just sticks. You know, I can't, uh, I'm just not even close to hunting season right now. And I'm in prime hunting ground. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. You know, you could go out there and you could by hiking around, you could be like, yeah, this is, you know, this would be an interesting place to come back to. At yeah. some point. It gave us some confidence going into it for sure. Cause you'd seen deer. Yeah. Out there. I only shed. found, I went out there. I only found, one one shed but it was a good shed and i was out there in april so everything had already shed their antlers at that point but i didn't mm-hmm. see a lot of deer um mostly does and fawns but i could tell that there were some that were were shed bucks at that time but uh mm-hmm. so yeah i i definitely knew that there was going to be some deer in the area mm-hmm. yeah, I, that's cool what we really didn't know is what the we had no idea what the hunting pressure might be like you get on different online forums and some people will paint the picture like there's just there's somebody behind every nothing bush there. out there. Yeah, and, and it seems like in a few areas around nothing. us, it was like that from hearing other people. Yep, but. I think there's some hot spots just like anywhere else where sure. you know, there's there's going to be some more people. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe there's some better camping options. Mm-hmm. I know one thing that Jake hit on that was a it's a big deal out there, and that's water. Yeah, because there it's arid. It is it is absolutely arid. It's like a desert and any of those little streams that you might find, it's not good water. Like we said, they run livestock. That's where all the livestock are at. Yeah, They're in those point. creeks. And you don't want to drink that water. I don't care if you purify it or not. Right, like yeah. you need to have a consistent clean water source, which staying in that campground was our water source of good clean water. Yeah. So that was our priority every night when we got back home to camp was Either go fill up those our big jugs or yeah. fill up you know our Nalgene bottles, get rehydrated, and uh, we we've talked about it since. You know it'd be a lot of fun to go back in there further. You know maybe hike five or six miles in and then just set up a, a camp there and then hunt from that the rest of the trip. But I don't know what a guy would do for water. Yeah, to pack. Yeah. It would have to be a situation where you could <clears throat> where you could pack in 
a lot or try and get out there like during a rainier season or something like that maybe collect some rainwater or something I don't know. Yeah, but just, even then how much rainwater are you really going to collect yeah. you know <laughs> i don't i mean that's and just you went through a whole gallon just of drinking water not even cooking water because that's arid, that's arid what short grass prairie probably right yeah <clears throat> kind of sagey it's and, very dry climate mm-hmm. they don't yeah. see a whole lot of precipitation throughout the year there yeah that's that's uh that is a big deal. And uh, Alex Gruen has talked about that when people hunt Nevada. Like, the heat there can literally kill you. I mean, it's just, well, it could have there in North Dakota, too. You yeah, know, it was you hot. Come, come from the Midwest where you think, uh, you know, I'm going to run by Casey's after I'm done hunting. <laughs> Casey's might be, well, a gas station might be, you know, 50 miles from a good ways. where you're parking, you know. So, water's just not like such a given like it is in this part of the country so if you're a midwestern hunter considering hunting in some of these areas that's definitely a life or death thing you got to plan for so you get out there you got this new totally different country short grass prairie arid hot um you're camping when did you start hunting was it like as soon as that first night you're like all right let's throw our tents on the ground and let's get out and let's get get the glass going and See if we can locate some deer. Is that what you guys, was that kind of the approach? So we rolled in. We actually got the best campsite in the entire place. The only one with shade. (laughs) Because it was, we got there like on a Sunday and it was opening weekend. And so everyone had been there Friday, Saturday. And they all left Sunday afternoon. We got there Sunday evening. Except for a couple groups. And they had already been in there because they ran out of camp spots. So they didn't want to move camp. And so we got the pick of the litter and we got all shaded campground. We got all set up pretty quickly. And then there is this one spot we could drive up to on top, right? As we, we drove by it on our way down and it was one of the higher spots in the area. So we decided to go up there just to glass and see what we saw just to kind of get an idea of where we wanted to go the next day. And so we sat up there for a couple hours, and we saw, I don't know, maybe five, six. Yeah, several of them bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple then, nice ones. Yep. There was another guy that came up to that same spot um, that we visited with, and he had some he had some good glass, and mm-hmm. uh, he'd been up there and done it before, so he he spotted a couple of them. Then I think Jake and I, we, we spotted some ourselves too. But mm-hmm. at that point in the trip, I think we got out there on September 4th, so it would have been the Sunday before Labor Day, mm-hmm. and uh, most all the bucks were still in velvet at that point. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that first night there might have been one that was coming out of velvet or was hard yeah. horn, but the rest of them were velvet. Yeah, Garrett and Sky were like, man, I can see his velvet hanging off his antlers. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to have to get glasses when I go home or something. Something's not right. I would <laughs> close one eye and adjust my binoculars. It'd be fine. I'm like, okay, I can see. Then I look in the other eye. Now it's blurry. I was like, man, my eyeballs are they're totally screwed up. <laughs> but I didn't want to say anything. And they're like, yeah, you see the velvet just hanging off the antlers. <laughs> like, these, there. Yeah, I'm like, clear like, as day. I yeah, just, very specific I just detail. see this brown spot out of mine. I'm like, man, <laughs> all right. I didn't figure out until the next morning when I took my binoculars apart because I was going crazy uh, that the... <laughs> It has been broken since day one that I've had them. I've always wondered what this dial did on the right side. But it, the pin inside of it was like twisted or something. And so I tore them all apart, put it back together, 
and then just didn't touch it the rest of the time after I got it adjusted. And then I could see velvet hanging off the antlers. <laughs> before that, it's going cross-eyed, looking through yeah. binoculars. But luckily, I figured that out pretty quick. This is definitely a country where good good glass, good optics is is going to be very important sure. to to the quality of your hunt and the overall success. Sure. I did, um, and I ran it that first night. Uh, I did have a spotting scope and a tripod, and I did lug it around the first full day of hunting. I left it at camp after that. I was able to, I felt like I could see well enough with my 10 by 42 binoculars. I can't see details when you're getting out there yeah. half mile, three quarters of a mile. I mean, we're looking at some deer that are a true full mile away. Yeah. I can't tell what they are. I could tell if it's bucks or does. I can't tell the quality of the buck. I wouldn't be able to tell you if it's 130 inches or 180 inches. Right. Um, you kind of count points well, a little and, bit. We didn't care. In all honesty, too, you know, from what I remember, your objectives weren't to go kill a 180. That's no. right. It we, was. I mean, sure, if you had the opportunity, absolutely. Sure. But you were much more opportunistic than that, right? Yeah, we were going to shoot a doe right away. We... A- absolutely. So. That's why I opted to just go ahead and leave it back at camp. I, to me, it wasn't worth carrying it around. Like I said, we could we could use our binoculars and see well enough for what we were out yeah. there to do. Well, and um, in that kind of heat, water's that limited, weight really starts to matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And I'm just, we're all three from the Midwest here. We haven't grown up using spotting scopes. <laughs> there is, I mean... There's a skill to that, oh, being able to use a spotting is. scope effectively and look through that. <laughs> absolutely, that that is a skill, and it's not one that I, I currently possess. For it. <laughs> and I guess when I went out there, I didn't feel like that was the time mm-hmm. to to force myself to learn. But anyhow, mm-hmm. I mean that that night we did see a handful of deer, mm-hmm. most of which were bucks. We might I know we seen a doe, maybe a couple fawns, mm-hmm. but so, at least three or four of them were bucks, mm-hmm. and. uh that was probably, you know, we were super optimistic. Yeah. I mean, these deer were actually just west of camp. Um, we could see camp from where we were at. And and uh, we knew, though, that that guy that was up there, he was probably going to be back the next day. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that we definitely found out to be true throughout the trip is the other hunters that were in camp, they didn't seem to get very far away from camp. And they spent a lot of time on the road travel around trying to see deer from the road, road and then make moves on them yeah and uh that was something i never i never fully understood until i hunted out west this last spring for bears the road hunting that is a that that is a major part of western hunting yes it is you cover a lot of and ground it, right and it makes sense i mean if if you can do it then because mm-hmm. you could the fact of the matter is you know take a you know, like a wooded area or a wide open prairie, you could walk for miles. Yeah, I don't see anything. <laughs> there's you see nothing. Yeah, and there, it's just not as game rich of an environment. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, the right. more ground that you can cover, probably the better off that you are. But mm-hmm. that wasn't it. Wasn't Jake and I's intention to go out there mm-hmm. and spend a bunch of time in a truck. We wanted to go out sure. there and hunt and hunt hard. We mm-hmm. wanted to see new territory and. Yep. Um, so that's what we did. So that mm-hmm. night, like. We picked well, out our spot. We picked out our spot for the next morning, mm-hmm. and uh, we never made a move or anything on those deer that we saw that night. We just decided, mm-hmm. you know, it's a good, feel good, got deer around, got some nice bucks around. Mm-hmm. We were pretty optimistic going in, into the first full day, and we had a place in mind that we, you know, we had a 
a target position to get into in the morning. It was the next highest spot in the area, I think. Yep. I think what we we just called it like Big Mountain or yeah. big, it was the tallest <laughs> big rock candy mountain. Or <laughs> it was a monster. We underestimated it, um, but I'll let Jake kind of pick up with uh, the first full day. Yeah, so we got up early. Um, yeah, it's 100 degrees at during the day, and it's like 30 degrees in the morning. <laughs> and so you got to wear all your clothes in the morning and then shed them all in the afternoon. Uh, so we had to get up real early. We had probably three miles to go or so. And we didn't even quite make it to that big mountain. We made it to one that was just about as big as it. Um, but it's pretty steep terrain. you got to really scramble up some of that bluff that's all crumbly kind of falling beneath mm-hmm. your feet um and try to be quiet uh but when we were hiking in there we bumped up a we think it might have been one of the bucks we saw later um but it was real dark out you could only just see the sure. outline of it um sounded like a horse running <laughs> running by you <laughs> it's about scared you half to death um but it was yeah it was just a really neat cool like the adventure was definitely there. I mean, yeah. you could see it would drop down out. It would drop down pretty far in some of those corners we'd walk around. That's right. Yeah. No, uh, you had hundreds to, of feet. You had to pay attention. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is it's some it's some serious country out there. I mean, it's yeah. it's nothing like hunting some of the really steep stuff further west, but mm-hmm. it's yeah. really just hills. But there is some steep drop offs, some very sharp faces, and uh, it yeah, it's could be. You got you got to be mindful mm-hmm. when you're out there for sure. Yeah, yeah. definitely a lot of ledges. Um, so yeah, we got to uh, this tall hill uh, bluff, and we set up there, and then we just started glassing for a while. And Garrett found like ten deer right away. <laughs> just, oh, got one! And, oh, got one! And I'm like, I can't see anything. <laughs> This is before I fixed my binoculars, too. Quit and saying that, fight. <laughs> you see him? You see him? <laughs> He's right there. <laughs> right next to the other one. Yeah. Oh, oh, no, oh, He's gone. And it's, yeah. it's kind of hard to point them out, though. When, when they you, are elusive out there, and they, they blend in so well. Like I said, a lot of these deer that you're seeing, I mean, if you're seeing them from your vantage point within three or 400 yards, that's a close one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Most of them are a half mile plus away that we were yeah. seeing. And uh, so it is, it, in the landscape out there, it is a, I'd call it a little bit featureless. I mean, you had to. It, it, it looks very similar. It was hard to pick out identifying landmarks. Sure. And then and when we, you get over there, it's hard to. And then it was really hard. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to say like, okay, you see this point or this ledge or this rock or this bush it was hard to find those and we ended up finding some that really stuck out and we used those landmarks for the rest of the week yeah we had yeah. one golden tree where <laughs> yeah the golden tree it was just the leaves on it i mean it was the only golden. tree that was that huh. turned. big tree i mean for that area mm-hmm. and it was right in the middle of an open area that a lot of deer tended i mean they went That's, by mm-hmm. we used that tree as a landmark for the entire trip mm-hmm. yeah we got a picture by it about two miles away <laughs> yeah i mean it was a long long ways out there but um didn't really feel super pressured to to start getting on stocks right away like we just kind of wanted to get our bearings 
you know, see if we could watch some deer bed down close to us, see what they do. Like mm-hmm. Jake said, it was very, very hot. So we knew that the movement was going to be limited to just really the first hour of daylight uh, in the morning. We didn't know what to expect for the evening. I guess that, that night before it was right there at last, like the last half hour, last 45 mm-hmm. minutes when the deer got up and started moving. It's just so hot during the day. They find little places to bed mm-hmm. down. And when sure. they do, they all but disappear. You can be watching them, watching them, watching them, watching them, and then they're just gone. Hmm. You, you assume that they bedded down right in there somewhere, but you really don't know if they did or if you just lost right, them or right. maybe they just worked right over a little ridge. There, There's a lot of folds in this ground in the topography, so they can go from being very visible to within a couple steps being hidden sure. to being exposed again to being hidden. And um, so that, that was – you know, it was just challenging to, to keep mm-hmm. our eyes on deer, but it was a good morning. Yeah, we seen, saw a lot, and a lot, seen not a lot in just morning. like one direction. They were like kind of all around us. They were all around us, yeah. So we had our pick. So then we, after it was 10 o'clock or something, we decided we wanted to make it to the top of that other mountain for the afternoon or whatever. I, I found the best branchler, like one of the all-time <laughs> I think we best texted, branchlers. I think we texted you. I mean, I was yeah. like 95% sure it was an awesome elk shed. But it was like, like certain oh. death if you went out to get it. Yeah. I mean, from where we were at, like I just, I glassed it up. I looked up there and I told Jake, I said, look up by that tree and tell me what you think that is. And he, he ended up seeing it. He's like, is that a shed? I'm like, it's about gotta be. I mean, it looked perfect. <laughs> It wasn't definitely a, a so branchler. Did, did you hike up to it? Oh yeah, yeah we, got we got up close. There. Yeah, we, we got up to the certain death part, but we got yep. close. Yep. Ended up bump bumped a deer too. Yeah. Now. Yeah. We, we found that they definitely would find in some of these little canyons there would be some dark. We'll call it dark timber. Sure. You know, thicker areas out of the sun, north facing. And it's thick and nasty. It's thick. You can't walk through it. And that's sure. where them deer bed down. I mean, mm-hmm. they get in there. You're not gonna you're not gonna hardly be able to stalk through that kind of environment yeah, or pick your way through it. And too it's just so much junk. You have to so about crawl on your belly to crawl through it. Yeah. Sounds like kinda like some of the what do they call it? The mesquite ground in like Texas where the javelinas like they kinda burrow around in that. Yep. That like real brushy stuff. Yep, this was all like really brushy stuff, and since it is so dry, everything you know, just like scratch. Everything crumbly. scratches, crumbly. It's it's loud, mm-hmm. and you know it's it's loud Crusty. on your pant legs. Yeah, crispy. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Crispy. So yeah, we went over and we we climbed up th- that big mm-hmm. mountain. We kind of called it. Took a little break up there. I found um, one of those like uh, you call them those generational beds. Yeah, where they, did. I mean, it was as level as could be. It, you could tell they just go to that one spot, look over every. It was time. a perfect bed. They could see a bunch. Uh, they get the wind in their favor, and I mean, it was just hollowed out. Sure. I mean, it was a bed that, like Jake said, it was definitely a generational bed, mm-hmm. one that they'd used over and over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And I've heard guys talk about that on podcasts before. Is you know the mule deer? I mean, they have specific beds that they like to go to and they'll use them day in and day out mm. and the mature deer and they're, they'll take the best bed. Yeah. I know they'll, they'll, they'll push the, the younger some, deer that's out something of the way. They, they'll uh, fight. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Well, that's, when it's such a, you know, when it's such a uh, commodity, hot commodity to have, you know, in an area like that, it makes sense. You know, that's, that's how they survive mm-hmm. to be that age. I wonder 
I wonder if deer, um, in that environment, if, if a certain number of deer will, uh, die by, uh, exposure to that heat every year, you know, uh, I, I kind of doubt it, but I imagine, you know, it's not unheard of either. There could be some, I assume, you know, the mule deer, they're just <laughs> Especially definitely. Especially like a really droughty yeah. year or something. Yeah. And some of those draws, they were a lot cooler in oh, the shade, balanced by the water. It was significantly Like 20 cooler. degrees cooler in the middle of the day, probably. And at night, it really dropped down. Yeah. And the mule deer are so much more suited for it than whitetails even. I mean, they've got much larger ears. That's to let heat escape. Um Right through the blood vessels in their ears, they're a much lighter colored than a white tail is. You know, mm-hmm. they're almost a gray, and uh, so they don't they don't catch quite as much sun. So that's that's a good point that you're bringing up here. Were you guys looking at both muleys and white tails, or were you looking at all muleys at this point? We I think the whole trip we only saw muleys. That's right. Yeah, no white tails. So you never ever laid eyes on a white tail no, while you no. were out there. Which is surprising. I know mm-hmm. that there's plenty of areas out there where... Are they just more in like the timbered country, you think? I think or? they're probably closer to some of the larger river systems. Yeah, we're the, probably okay. five miles from a river. Yeah, like a, I mean, we weren't far from like the Missouri River runs through there, and then there's the, the little, little Missouri, Missouri River. Yeah. Um, so those, I think That's those areas are probably where the white tails are at. Mm-hmm. Where we were at, it was just mule deer mm-hmm. and and that was all i seen when i was out there a few years prior as sure. well but uh yeah just a lot that first day just kind of getting mm-hmm. the lay of the land i did a lot uh, of stump shooting on our way over yep lots i of stump uh shooting. picked out a stump to shoot and i was like, i'll go first and i smoked it but it sent my arrow forever away i was like what in the world there's a petrified wood it's <laughs> 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 like shooting a concrete <clears throat> yeah pad <laughs> And so Garrett's like, yep, I'm not going to shoot that one. <laughs> Did you guys pick up a hunk of petrified wood? No, he didn't. I think I had some from when I was out there a few years ago. It's really weird. Like, Oh, yeah. It's, yeah there's a bunch cool. of it, though. It's all yeah. over the place. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. That's pretty cool. Very common. Grab some yeah. next time. Yeah. Well, like, it's weird because you can. To gra- you're allowed to rock hound on public ground. But you. If it was like a arrowhead national. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. arrowheads you're not supposed to take. Anything like human, like related to like archaeology as opposed to like fossils, you can take and rocks you can take. (laughs) So paleontology and geology you can take. Archaeology related to humans, you got to leave it. Yep, which that area out there, I mean, it looks like the kind of place you could find. A few arrowheads. (laughs) Arrowheads or... Like you were talking about paleontologists and looking <laughs> a, for a T Rex. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Yeah. I mean that. I think Sue, the T Rex, she was found down in South Dakota and probably similar terrain to this. Sure. And, um, yeah, yeah that's crazy country. Yeah, I mean, you never, you just feel like there could be anything probably out some there. Like fossilized oyster beds and stuff like that. <laughs> and I don't know what all would be out there. I mean, it it looks. That wood's it looks really like weird. Fossils to me, or clam beds, or whatever those things are. Yeah, crinoids. Those are like, because there was, there was at one point, you know, big vast part of the west there was was an ocean. Yeah, but yeah, that's that's really interesting, and it, I mean, it helps kind of just paint the picture for how unique the land is that you guys are hunting in at this point. Yeah. So, was it basically that? Every single day, just like, you know, hunt all day to, till, you know, basically dark till dark. 
I mean, what else are you going to do? Yeah, we would leave at, I think, 5-something in the morning and get back at 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. Yeah, I think we tried to leave at 4.45, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think toward the end of the trip, as we were starting to branch out further, um, (laughs) we had to get up a little bit earlier. But we also, um, you know, we got in a little bit better shape, too. It was amazing how your body kind of reacts to that. Mm -hmm. In a short amount of time, I mean, by day three and four, we were feeling a lot better than what we were the first couple of days. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so um, that first day, then we got up to the top of that mountain, and then we kind of wanted to find our spot for the evening. So we took a couple na- a couple naps and then uh, had some snacks and then headed over, and uh, we got set up for that night, and then I'll let Garrett go from there because that's kind of the climax well, here. Well, yeah, so... so you you got a you got a good spot here and it's like it's time to hunt right you're you're getting to you're zeroing in you're getting things figured out and you're ready to we basically tried getting ourselves in a position where we felt like we would be pretty close to a few of the deer that we'd seen that morning mm-hmm. so because we'd already at that time come to the conclusion that you're gonna have to be pretty close to them either first thing in the morning and make a move on them as fast as you can mm-hmm. or be close to where they're going to get out of their bed in the evening and be able to make a move on them as fast as you can before it gets dark. You're working with a limited amount of time because there's just nothing that's going to be going on during the middle of the day when it's as hot as it is. So we found a good spot that we hung out at, you know, spent the last few hours of the day, um, under a big, you know, cedar tree. I don't know what, what they are out there. I'll call mm-hmm. them cedar trees. And, uh, we, pretty good vantage point mm-hmm. we were hanging out there and, and uh just visiting and at one point i was convinced that i heard a deer sneeze you know it's unmistakable like i heard it and i knew what i heard at the time and it, we even put we had arrows on the strings i'm like jake i heard it yeah. A deer sneeze, and I don't. Did you really hear it, Jake? Or I can't remember. I thought I, I did, but I can't remember. And it was one of those things where we didn't. Eventually, you talk yourself out of it and think, "Well, that must not have been what it was." Mm-hmm. And I shouldn't have done that. You know, I should have just trusted what I heard, which it ended up being fine. It worked out. Um, as it got down to that last, probably twenty or twenty-five minutes of light, I decided. I told Jake I wanted to move a little bit further west, probably only 35 or 40 yards. And that was going to give me the ability to see a whole different hillside Mm -hmm. and and over the ridge and and down in this next valley. So I snuck my way over that way. I didn't take, you know, I didn't take my pack with me, rangefinder nuts. All I had was just my bow and uh, went over there and I got behind another one of these small cedar trees. And I was kind of looking over, getting ready to start doing some glassing. I look down the hill I was on to my right and there's this young mule deer buck and he's only oh. about 20, 25 yards away and he's looking at me. And I think he had been bedded right at the base of that, of the cedar tree that he was behind. Uh-huh. And I was probably already behind my cedar tree by the time he stood up. He probably heard me, but I don't think he watched me walk behind that tree. I think he just got up and then he seen he would have been able to see kind of my shoulders and head, mm-hmm. but not the rest of my body. And uh, he didn't get too spooked or anything. Um, I just kind of slowly shifted over to try to get as much of that cedar tree in between me and him. As he turned his head and got behind the cedar tree that he was next to, I dropped down, got an arrow on a string, 
and I tried to, I ended up making my way another six or seven yards closer to him. There was another cedar tree just down the, down the hill a bit further from me. So as I got down there and got behind that, um, I was in a really good position for a shot. At one point, he was probably only 15 or 16 yards away, and he was eating on, you know, the the freshest growth that was on these cedar trees. Okay, yeah. And you, I just remember, I mean, it just sounded almost like a horse, you know, when you, when they're out in a pasture, like just ripping yeah. grass. You could just hear him ripping. It just, it sounded, I mean, there's, he was making a lot of noise <laughs> eating on this stuff. Yeah. And everything is so tough, you know, you yeah. just hear it. And so at, at one point he was rolling only about 15 yards away, but he was quartering right toward me okay, and I was yeah. in a really good spot. He had calmed down completely. Um, and I knew that there was going to be a shot opportunity at some point if I just right. stayed patient. So I actually, and I had the wind in my favor too, but I don't know if he ended up seeing me or hearing me or something kind of spooked him. I'm not even sure if it had anything to do with me or if a bug, a fly landed on him or yeah, something. Yeah, right. But something kind of made him turn around and quarter away from me and take a couple leaps, a couple bounds down the hill a little bit further. And so at that point, probably 20-ish yards, still was comfortable with that shot, quartered away. I pull back, first, you know, first shot of the season. Here I am, you know, all, you know, I'm heart jacked speed, up. 100 miles. Yeah, an hour, right. Jacked up. And uh, wasn't my most controlled shot or best shot, and and uh, but it it was fine. It just went a little bit right beneath of him, and I don't know. Uh, you know, it is big country. Things look a little bit different out there. Jake and I shooting traditional. We're more or less instinctive right. shooters. I don't know. Maybe that had a little bit to do with it, but I think more than anything, it was just just the nerves. Yeah, you yeah. know, I just shot right underneath of him. And uh, he took off. He ran down down that ridge, uh, probably forty or fifty yards. Then he stopped, and I could see him. And he looked back. He couldn't figure out what it was. At this point, it was probably ten minutes left to light. I would say. And and also, Jake had no clue that I was over there shooting at this deer, <laughs> and he's only fifty, sixty yards away. And I'm like, if that, yeah, if that, probably forty, maybe. Yeah. It it was not far, and I'm just hoping and praying that he doesn't start stomping his way over here yeah. for me, you know, to be ready to hit. Cause that's any, I'm thinking at any time, like he's going to come over here wanting to see what I'm hey, looking at up, or fight? why I'm over here. <laughs> Gary, he did. what's going on? Man? He stayed right back there at his spot. But, uh, so I, I, I got another arrow on the string. I kind of had time to compose myself and this deer started coming back and, and he come and he was on a trail that was a little bit further away. I'd say he's probably around 22, probably 21, 22 yards, something like that. We ended up kind of walking it off. And it was in the last couple minutes of light, he did give me another shot opportunity, perfectly broadside. Really, I could only see from his shoulder back. And uh, I pulled that arrow back, and, and I told Jake that night, and I'll still stand behind it. I mean, it, I definitely felt like it was probably the most controlled shot that I've ever sent at a critter. Uh, with a stick bow felt mm -hmm. great everything felt good it was getting dark enough i i kind of lost sight of the arrow as it was going through the air toward him but good solid hit could tell i hit him he took off running uh away from us i and heard him take at that off. point jake 
Jake heard him that time, and he knew something was, was going like, Man, on. Man, deer running right to me. <laughs> I just saw the rear end of him and his Ironic. legs kick. Yeah, if we would have never even moved, he probably would have walked right up on where we were sitting. So we just happened to pick the just the right spot. Sure. Hmm. So went back to Jake. Uh, we hung out there for a few minutes and kind of just let it all sink in. I was very confident at the time. I felt like that was a, a good solid shot. I felt like it, it sounded like I was thinking lungs, you know, just yeah. good solid hit in front of the diaphragm. I was thinking, and uh, I thought we were going to be, you know, we were already kind of talking about what the rest of the night would look like packing this deer off this mountain, getting mm-hmm. back to camp. My big pack was back at camp three miles away. I was thinking, man, I got six <laughs> miles ahead of me before I make it back. <laughs> I know it. Well, Garrett's cutting this thing up. So we ended up, you know, gave him the, the customary half an hour, went down there, ended up finding both arrows. The first one that I'd missed him with, uh, confirmed clean miss. I knew that. And then it took us a couple of minutes, but we found the arrow that I had hit him with, and it was hung up in a bush a few yards past uh, where the point of impact would have been, and it was covered in stomach matter. I had, Whoa. you know, nothing good, not really a speck of blood on it, just it looked like it went Straight through. Guts. Yeah, it's just like little pieces of grass, hay. I mean, oh, no. that's all it was. That's all it was. And I think um, that stomach was just so packed full of all that dense Mm-hmm. vegetation that he'd been feeding on that's that's why that that shot sounded so solid i mean it really <clears throat> kind of I mean, like just, a drum just boom. yeah but it a drum full of this yeah. you know just think of wet hay stuff in wet oh, hay like yeah. but it's as tight as like almost as tight as a basketball or something like <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, honestly, I'm surprised that I even got a complete pass through on it because it was it was a lot to ask of that arrow to punch through all that Sure. That matter. I mean, that that would have been a lot harder. That was a lot more to go through than just going through the tissues of the lungs or, right. you know, or something like that. So we knew at that point we had a decision to make. We had to decide if we were going to hang out up there for a couple hours or if we were going to go back to camp. It was the first day. We underestimated how hot it was, how much water we were going to go through. We were essentially out of water at that point. I know I probably was. Um, a lot of times with these stomach shot deer and in my experience it could take 10 12 18 plus hours for these deer to die mm-hmm. we'd only been out there one night before i was confident that there was a lot of coyotes around but we didn't really realize at that point just how many coyotes there were in yeah. this landscape but that was definitely a concern we knew that uh it was going to get warm quick the next day, but it, it got down to upper 30s or 40 degrees that night. So from mm-hmm. a meat spoilage standpoint, I wasn't concerned about that, but we were concerned about the coyotes. And uh, But we also needed to get back to camp because we were wore out after our first day of some big hike and we needed yeah. to get some food in us. We didn't have anything. Well, more than I mean, what are you going to do? You know what are you going to do? You, you didn't have any water you gut shot either. Here. We, you could... You could uh, and and you're out of time for legal hours for shooting. So, what are you gonna do? Yeah, I mean, really, you got one option. We got one option, and we felt like at that point we went back to camp. Mm-hmm. But I did make the comment to Jake that night that maybe the best thing we could do is head right back up the, we'll call it mountain, and uh, spend the night up there close. And I've heard Bill Bill Winky's done that before. You know, I've heard of him. You know, in situations where He's made a bad shot on a deer, 
they'll just go out in the side by side or pickup truck or whatever, get within a hundred, 200 yards of where you think that that deer might be and wait for the coyotes to start howling and go in there and claim your deer. And I'm sure, you know, based on what we ended up finding the next day, it was probably an absolute feeding frenzy. Yeah. It's and, party uh, going on. <laughs> we would have known what was going on. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if I could go back and do it all over again, knowing what I know now, I probably would have went right back up there that night and I would have hung out within, I, I would have went right back to that tree Jake and I were sitting under, which would have put me within 150 yards that deer. And when the coyotes started going nuts and we would have went down there and tried to, you know, scare them off, scare them off the carcass yeah. and, and you'd be able to salvage the meat. But, um, to fast yeah, that's forward, a good, that's a good point, you know, but still at the same time, it's, it's so hard to, cause Unless those coyotes killed that deer, which they probably did, you know, after, because a gut shot is going to take hours for that deer to die of, of that wound. Unless you clipped some longer diaphragm or something with it. Um, you got to wait for them to kill the, catch the thing and kill the thing anyways. So yep. you could just be wandering and wandering while that process is. Yeah. happening too so i mean i don't think you should beat yourself up too bad about it. i mean essentially when the shot ended up being a gut shot which you felt confident about your shot when you took the shot like the fate was kind of sealed you know and when you think about coyotes that's where they come from they're from the prairie they're from yep. they're 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 a western species i mean yeah they're native to this area too but but especially out there so they're i mean that's just a it's kind of a tough break yep so I'll uh, I'll jump ahead just a, a little bit because we did have some good action morning of, of day two prior to taking up the, the trail on this deer. Mm-hmm. But um, unless Jake, I guess I won't get ahead of myself. Well, we, we made it back to camp that night. Yeah, uh, we ended up, you know, getting some food in us. Mm-hmm. We, we talked to some other people that were camped close by, kind of explained the situation mm-hmm. to them. Um, they were some guys that had mostly been doing some road hunting, mm-hmm. tried to get some sleep that night. We took off early the next morning. We went right back up to that same tree. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the intention was to, to try to get a, a quick hunt in for Jake, mm-hmm. um, but it's in, still cold and cool. in the morning and take advantage yep. of, of that opportunity. And then mm-hmm. as soon as that good morning window of opportunity was over, we were going to take up the trail on this deer because at that point, you know, it's either a, he's still alive, but you know, right they're on his deathbed or number two he's dead and there's no coyotes on him or he's three he's <laughs> dead and the coyotes have him tore up you know yeah. it's one of those three at that point and it wouldn't matter if it was two hours later um you know that wasn't going to make the difference so we decided to go ahead and, and make a hunt and yeah. i'll let you explain that jake yeah so um yeah we started glassing all around and i think i was the one who saw these two deer that came in um there's two bucks, and there might have been a doe with them too, maybe. I'm not sure. But there's definitely these two bucks together. Um, they're kind of just worked their way down. Um, we kind of basically just watched them go to bed, and then we decided that I was going to go in and try to sneak up on them. We kind of knew right where they went in to go to bed, but we weren't 100% sure. But, it, I mean, when you're half a mile away, it looks like a really small <laughs> grove of trees. But right, then when you get yeah. there, it's way bigger. Yep. But so I ran over there because it's nice because you can kind of go up on the rim and they can never hear you up there. And so I ran about as fast as I could because uh, you're so excited. So it's not like all you can do is run. And so I ran all the way over there, probably a half mile or so. And then I snuck down 
quietly and I tried going through the because I hadn't stocked one yet I tried going through the woods thinking I could pick my way through just like normal woods Mm -hmm. and then I realized within five seconds that I made it two inches and I was like that's it and so I got on the edge of the woods and kind of worked my way down slid down a little bit here slid down a little bit there and then I could see Garrett up on the hill he was kind of giving me directions telling me if they had left or not and so um I made it all the way down within, I was probably within like 40 yards of him, but you just can't see him in there. Right. And so I was just looking around, looking around, trying to be patient. And I took one more step and then they both stood up and blew out of there. But it's an adrenaline rush. It's, it's awesome. They blow at you like a white tail? Uh, a little bit. Uh, and then, but they, they just cleared out of there so fast. And then do a little brown thing. Yeah. They're so far away. You can't can't keep chasing because yeah. they'll go miles away from you in yeah. seconds. That's another thing too that reminded me, you know, with not wanting to push that deer that I had hit. It's not like you bump them in a woodlot around here. Like they're probably not going to go that far. They'll find another right. place to bed down out there. They, you bump that deer. He could go. <laughs> he may never enter that country ever again. <laughs> I mean, you know how important it is to not bump a deer after, you know, if you've made a poor shot Yeah. around here, out there, I would say it's, it's, ten, uni- it's, it's uniform it's habitat. 10 times so, more important. Yeah. To not, I mean, once you bump, I mean, it is going to be so hard to try to find a deer. If, if you know he's within 150 yards on a <clears throat> typical of a gut shot deer, you got your work cut out for you just to find him within that kind of a radius. Yeah. If that if he, if he's maybe 500 yards plus out and you're looking at that, you'll good luck. Yeah. You'll probably never find him. Like I said, there's so many folds and different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, then after I blew him out, I hiked all the way back. I think I probably jogged a little bit just so I could get back, help Garrett find his deer. He was jogging like <laughs> we seen. I get so excited. It just feels good to. We <laughs> only seen a couple people the whole time that we were out hunt- when we were actually hunting. <laughs> right. We only seen people a couple different times, neither of which was hunters. Mm-hmm. When we were back in there where we were out away from camp, we never seen another hunter, which I think is huh. important to, yeah. to comment on. I mean, public area, we were the only two guys hunting it yeah. while we were out. Mm-hmm. This, opening, this opening week. Yeah, you know, that's a good thing to know. But... Um, that day i don't think jake ever got to see him but i could hear some sort of bell and i, I could not figure it out I was like just ding 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 and here comes this guy he's just running across you know this trail is actually the same trail that jake and i had hiked up that morning but i guess the bell was on there probably in case there's mountain lions or any other predator i think it's really common for people that are out in bear country you know, yeah. they'll, they'll if they're hiking or <laughs> doing trail running or bicycling <laughs> they'll uh they'll wear a bell. We ended up seeing another, a cyclist later on in the trip, but those are the only two people I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The whole week seen mm-hmm. uh, some, some evidence of some, some, uh, trail riders on horses. Okay. But, yeah. uh, yeah, that was it. So for hunting, that was, it was just, uh, so Jake ended up making his way back to me, went back to, uh, the, the impact site where I'd hit the deer. And at that point we, we found out pretty early on that there's like little to no blood. We found a few specks mm-hmm. and uh, a long huge, process. yeah, it was a long process. And I pretty much, I mean, just huge kudos to Jake. He did an awesome job, but uh, I pretty much just assigned him to looking specifically for blood. Like you kind of look for the details. 
I'm going to cover a bunch of ground trying to just body search for this deer or looking for any, you know, yeah. big clues, anything like that. And, uh, I never found a thing, you know, that, that really led to the discovery of this deer. It was just Jake consistently, he ended up finding a different arrow that somebody else's arrow, arrow up there from years past, which I thought was ironic. Oh, we never oh. seen any hunters. We never saw that's any other crazy. evidence. Of, yeah. And then there's this arrow that's from years, you know, a couple of years old, mm-hmm. uh, where somebody had either shot a deer with it or missed a deer or fell out of the quiver, something right there in that area. That's crazy. But mm-hmm. he kept using it as a marker in between where he was finding little drops of blood. You know, you call it blood, but mm-hmm. when you stomach shoot them, it's almost more like bile or something. It was just yeah. little discolorations on the soil. Yeah. Very, very, very challenging conditions mm-hmm. for blood trailing. Yeah, Jake's a good bloodhound. He's good yeah, for he's, finding finding did, little specks of He did fantastic, blood. and he even found, you know, actual tracks, fresh tracks, which was this deer yeah. that led us to where we that's found. A, that's a huge tracking skill right there is yes. to be able to key on the non, non-target sign yes you know and not be so laser focused on only seeing blood you know looking on the the tall grass is there white marks from the blood on the side of the deer you know or is there the tracks is there you know Busted sticks. beds yeah is there you know all that other stuff that may not contain blood is just so critical mm-hmm. on a tough track like that yep and i went into it like you're not supposed to i had the preconceived idea that i mean i felt like i knew where this deer was at mm-hmm. and he wasn't in there like he had yeah he had veered off <clears throat> well, i thought he was going to continue to go straight he took a hard right and which, dropped down like 25 feet like oh a yeah 25 foot ledge like something you would never anticipate he would go down i wonder if that's when he you know ran into coyotes maybe well i don't they... think so so what it looked like to me is he made it is right about 120 yards um by a hundred yards into is where we found the most blood and there's blood on, you know, either side where it looked mm-hmm. like he had stood for a, okay. you know, yeah. s- several minutes. Um, from there, you know, another 15 or 20 yards to kind of this ledge that, that Jake's talking about. And it was 15 or 20 feet down from there at the base of that. When I looked down over there, that's where I could see the evidence that that's where he had actually expired. I could see bits and pieces of him. And yeah, he could, I mean, there was evidence that that's what had happened down there, but going down and looking at it more closely, there's definitely a single bed and there's drag marks out of that bed. So I'm not saying that this wow. deer wasn't dead. Cause I know I'm like you. I mean, I, I've been around these gut shot deer like that. They typically don't give up the ghost that easily. Mm-hmm. He very well still could have been alive, but they pulled him from that bed. I mean, he didn't have the strength if he was alive, wow. I don't think he had the strength to move. I wonder if you bed clip, and then drag marks. clipped a little diaphragm maybe with that arrow. Could have. Um, we This deer, uh, it was unbelievable how little was left of him. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm guessing he was probably a two-and-a-half-year-old mule deer, 175 pounds, we'll say, on the hoof, live mm-hmm. weight. Um, I don't know if there was 75 pounds left. I mean, it was really just – the you know bones and just bones and hide picked clean like it was picked clean clean. wow there was no meat on any of the legs i mean neck was all all, pulled out the the whole entire neck was was ate out i mean there was no meat left in there um it was really just the spinal column you know some of the heavier leg bones was it one of the eyes hanging out too 
No, yeah. so he kind of had, I think they call it like fib- oh, right. fibromas or fibromas. Oh, he had, he had like, one He kind of like one of those warty. I mean, I've seen yeah. the white tails around here. Yeah. Sometimes they'll have them, and sometimes the same deer, they'll end up. Fibroblast. Fibroblastoma or something like fibroblastoma, that. Fibroblastoma, something like that. But he had that where he, and it did. It looked like one of his eyes was hanging That's out, so, okay. but it wasn't. That's what I always thought that was. It was just one of okay. those. Yeah. Um, That's kind of cool to see that. Yeah, it's something different. You're right. You know, he looked, so the pictures, he he looks hideous because he's got no meat in his neck. He, <laughs> deflated. He's, he's deflated. Hey, like, you, did a good, you did a good job making the most out of that picture. All things considered, like, he looks as good as he possibly could have. Like, I don't know how <laughs> we right. got him to look that good in the pictures, but yeah. it was a pretty ugly scene. But we did find the stomach. That was, as far as organs, that was the only thing that wasn't eaten. Hmm. And you could see entry and exit. You know, coming out oh, of the stomach. Oh, really? Right so through the stomach. It was dead center. You know, which really, if you think about that stomach, if if you get low and just a touch back, that stomach sits right underneath the lungs. You know, you, yeah. you, you it's well. Also, you know, you have, you know, all mammals have major art, hepatic arteries going through their and veins going through the digestive tract, and so. I mean, you could have hit one of those, and could that's have. just like hitting your femoral artery or hitting your jugular. Yeah. You're going to be dumping blood so fast that... Yeah, something... But, I mean, you would have think, too... Although, that would be pretty well internal bleeding only. You know what I mean? Sure. It, because that's going to be, again, from a ground... Hitting a deer at ground level takes a while to tank up to get to those entry and exit holes to be dripping out, and so... He might have been filling up on blood, and and you may have nicked one of those arteries, and that might he may have been dead, you know, within. He may have I within the half hour. He he may have, you know, I I don't know, but I am I am confident looking at at that scene that he didn't he didn't get out of that bed. I mean, there there's yeah. there's that one and only bed from from where I hit him to where he ended up. That was the only bed. There was no beds in between. And then there's drag marks right out of that, you know, and that's where everything basically went down. And I, so like I said, 175 pound deer, 75 pounds left. You're looking at a hundred pounds consumed. That's and I know crazy. that they could have maybe drugged some stuff off that I didn't see, but we found I, all the legs and the it was all gone. Everything. Like everything was picked clean. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you're looking at, I don't know if that means there was 10 coyotes. I don't know if that means there was 15 coyotes. I have no clue. Yeah. But it would have been, it would have been a pretty wild thing to hear and see. Oh yeah, probably a lot of fighting and everything else going on. But yeah, you know, it's it's unfortunate that it ends that way. But uh, you know, people that say what a waste. It's like, well, do you not believe in nutrient cycling? I mean, eventually, (laughs) everything that eats that deer becomes quote unquote a waste. You know, (laughs) like you you those the thing you know the very material that makes that deer now makes those coyotes and eventually those coyotes will die and all that material return to the soil and whatever else eats them. So it's not, it's, you're still functioning within the ecosystem as a predator playing an important role, uh, in, and how matter and energy is cycled through that ecosystem. So it's an unfortunate thing. Jake knows, well, fight knows too. I've definitely wounded my fair share of deer that I never recovered and, I know for sure one of them died. I know uh, 
um, you know, a couple others, there's a good chance they died too. And, uh, it stinks when it happens, but it is part of it. And honestly, in my opinion, your story had a happy ending because you mm -hmm. got closure. You got to, you have to spend the rest of the week, you know, wondering if you should keep hunting or not, or, you know, it is nice to have that closure and come home still with something, you know, you got a skull cap out of it and, or your amount or something, I assume, right? Stinky you know. one. Yep, yep. So they ended up getting, bringing, bringing the skull home, and uh, I did put my tag on him. And of course, at that point, you know, I was obviously done for the week. Um, yeah. Even if I wouldn't have brought the skull home, if it wouldn't have been, if it would have been a doe uh, for me personally, I that was that was my tag to use um on that deer i mean i didn't it wouldn't have been right i had a couple of people question me on on that after the fact they were like well did you really have to tag it and i said i guess i'm not really sure if i had to i didn't take it yeah i think it, technically it's, it's right you're yeah i do. think you're technically you know you could treat it like oh i don't know if that's the one i shot it's just a yeah, dead deer but but yeah i know. mean and and we're there to get meat yes but we're, there's also a trophy side of i don't care if, what you're hunting you know i suppose maybe you can make the argument if you're, shoot, you're shooting a cow elk or a doe or something you're you're maybe not trophy hunting at all but anytime you're shooting at an antlered animal or a horned animal or something with giant claws or teeth <laughs> you're all there's a trophy aspect to it in some level i don't i mean I guess when we interviewed Bill that one time, he <laughs> he he didn't care about that. But ninety nine point nine percent of hunters, I don't care what they say, hey, there's a trophy side of it, and so absolutely, it's part of it. And mm -hmm. that was something you accomplished. You you got at least the trophy side of it. And man, that's super hard to accomplish. And it was on country. day one, which was crazy. Yeah, wide open yeah. country, uh, totally new country for hunting in uh traditional archery equipment there's so much going against you that there's a very very good chance that you wouldn't have even gotten another shot opportunity if you didn't tag that animal so i think absolutely you did everything right circumstances you know being what they were and uh, it's just kind of unfortunate that it ended up where you didn't get any meat out of it but um you know, that's, that's just how it goes sometimes. And a lot of people don't end up getting the closure, you know? Yeah, no, I was fortunate for that. And, uh, definitely not, not the outcome you, you hope for or dream about, but, uh, it, it is an unfortunate reality of hunting. I've, I've been there. You, you know, like you said, you've been there. Everybody that's hunted long enough has, has been there and it's, it's not what we want. You know, I, I shoot my bow year round to mm -hmm. try to make sure that I'm in, you know, I, I'm, prepared and ready to make a good and clean shot and that's what i'm that's what i'm out there to do and i i felt like it was um you know like i said really yeah you th you mentioned that when you shot you maybe, felt like it was a dynamite dynamite shot just just one of those deals um things happen and so anyhow you know m moving forward from that like jake said that was just day day one mm -hmm. found him morning day two mm -hmm. jake had just come off of a really really good stock morning day two you know at that mm -hmm. point we had been already within 40 yards of three different box wow. and this is just the second full day of our That's hunt awesome. so we're really optimistic um 
finished out hunting the rest of that second day. I don't think we might have seen uh, one or two does mm, that evening, evening, made our way back to uh, to camp, and then I'll let Jake kind of take off. You know, days three, okay. four, five. Kind of know, all run together. We kind of all run together. Similar. Bit, we, yeah, know, we're, we right saw, around, we're right around the two-hour mark here. Okay. But, yep. but, yeah, it kind of sum up, like, how the rest of the week went mm-hmm. down. So, yeah, a lot of the days were similar. We'd see uh, quite a few in the morning, quite a few in the evening. And we kind of hopscotched around, but we stayed in the same probably five bowls, probably I'd call them, and drainages would probably be a better term. And, uh, yeah, I can't remember which day it was, um, maybe Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, we went to this new place that we called Hidden Valley because it was it was hidden from every, nobody would go back there. And so it was quite a hike back there, though. And we got set up, and we didn't see much at all until about i think we had 30 minutes of light left and as doe walks out two does walk out and they're there i measured it later they're a mile away and there's 30 minutes oh, of light wow. left and we're i mean gary were talking I'm like man what should we do and i was like i'm going for it i don't care yeah and i mean we're out here to hunt so i knew i was gonna have to run as fast as i could in order to find them and climb down inside that drainage and so I, and it was part of a trail we've never been on before either. So we didn't know what it was like around the corner. Mm-hmm. And so I ran as fast as I could. I was probably running real slow, but I was <laughs> huffing it. And 30 minute mile. Yeah. That's what <laughs> I ran like. out of legal light by the time <laughs> yeah, I got there. <laughs> just about. And so I'm, I'm dying when I get over there. And then I'm like, okay, whew, I'm to the edge. I just need to look down and she'll be right down below me. I looked down, I was like, there's nothing there. No, doesn't look right. Oh, no. I got to go all the way around another drainage to get to the ledge I needed to be at. And so, but I looked down, I saw the feature to my left, because I thought she was right below me. I looked to my left, and I see the feature of where she was, and there she is again. And so, I had to backtrack a long ways and keep running and go all the way around this other kind of cut. And then I got to the top of that ledge that she was below and she was still down there. And I was looking at Garrett and the binoculars and he just kept telling me she was there and he didn't know if she was or not, <laughs> but I'd already made it that far. <laughs> She's in there. Yeah, you go ahead. And, but <laughs> I had to go down that ledge and it, it was steep and you're trying to be quiet. You're kicking rocks and it's really hard. And so I made it down and then I knew about where she was and I just kept creeping up. And there's about 10 minutes left of light. And I look up and she's about 50 yards away, staring right at me. And I've Aww. run out of cover. And so I kind of tuck myself in behind a rock. And I just like, wait and pray that she comes closer. And she came within about 30 yards. And, that, and I was down to one minute. I was looking at my watch. And so I was like, well, I felt comfortable. I don't know. I shot at 30, but... I feel most comfortable, you know, at 15 yards with my stick bow. Uh, but it's so hard to get close to those things that you kind of have to take. Yeah, you got to push yourself a little bit. You got to stretch that range. You know, I think people do this like self righteous claim, like, oh, my range is 15 yards. I'm not. All right. Well, look, you can drive out to North Dakota for years then, buddy, and you may mm-hmm. never, ever shoot you, your bow. So. Yeah. You got to stretch it out there. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we, we, done a lot of stump sh- stump shooting yeah. by this point in the trip yep. and we had taken we a lot of shots and we were kind of 
our minds were dialed yeah. into that kind of train topography. Yeah, we were J- practicing. And, and, I, and I quote it all the time, the old, good old Michael Jordan saying, you miss 100% of the shots you never take. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah. you got to have a little bit of that. And I was confident I could hit her right, with it. Yeah, like I was shooting ethical, 70 sure. yards, you know, just checking it up. But, um, yeah, I shot and it <laughs> went just right over her back and I missed and she ran away. But I was able to find my arrow and no blood on it or anything. But then I had to run a mile back <laughs> to meet up with it Garrett. Was, it was really cool to be able to see from my perspective because I was watching, you know, I was looking across this valley, we dubbed Hidden Valley, and I got to see the whole show and watch him kind of come down that rock face and then work his way around the edge. And I wasn't 100% sure if he had shot, but I was pretty sure he had. Um, and it was really neat to see. But I'm telling you, it was impressive. I mean, like Jake said, this was – if it was just a mile to get over there, it was a big mile. Yeah. And uh, everything – you know, it's it's tough. This isn't like running a mile on your <laughs> – you know your parents treadmill here this is this is tough and and it was later on in the week and we were wore out Mm -hmm. we'd put in a ton of miles already that i mean we were probably about that was the big day yeah that at the end of the night miles in yeah at the end of the night we were at 14 and a half miles that day yeah that's a lot of effort tough hike and so no tremendous amount of effort on jake's part i was impressed uh that he even decided to to go after and because honestly like, I'm not sure if I would have been in his shoes in that situation. I might have said, you know what, half an hour left. <laughs> I think I'll just watch her tonight, yeah. you know. But he, he didn't. He yeah. went after her. And, and he and, got a uh, shot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he got, he a, got shot. a shot, and he got a good shot. And like I said, just um, you that arrow drops another six inches lower, and mm-hmm. uh, we'd be eating back straps that night. Yeah. Yeah. Big hike out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I was probably one of the coolest experiences I ever had hunting. Like I was just grinning ear to ear when I got back. I think. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. And yeah, then- you you earned it, and that's what feels so good, you know. And and man, the amount of learning that comes from d- putting yourself through those new experiences, those uncomfortable experiences, those little bit of desperation experiences, like we talked about with the shot, stretching yourself a little bit past your comfort zone there that's when you really grow leaps and bounds as a hunter. You know, uh, we're going to do a bear hunt recap this spring to kind of get people excited about spring bears here. We'll bring Alex on. We'll bring Edwin on. We'll bring uh, Rasty back on. And we'll talk about our bear hunt. And I have said it so many times, I felt like I grew in literally 10 years of hunting experience by going on that trip Mm -hmm. because you're just stretched so far in so many different ways and uh you just got to be so much more in tune with it and so Mm -hmm. you know jake doesn't come home with a mule deer Mm -hmm. or deer fike does Mm -hmm. which is awesome but even still, you know, of course, when you're going out there, you're like, man, I hope we got room in this truck for the deer that we're going to be hauling home. <laughs> you know, like you have that optimism. Mm-hmm. And and when you come back and you tell people, yeah, I didn't fill my tag or, yeah, the deer got all eaten up by coyotes. For somebody who wasn't there, it's easy to be like, oh, that's a disappointment. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Yeah, we got two you more the, stocks in after that. Yeah, so two more stocks in, two more in another shot opportunity too uh just about but she blew out right at the end one of yeah, them was. I, mean, I mean you know how many things you have to get right to get into that position you know like whenever you get a shot opportunity when you're hunting 
you have, I've said this before on the podcast, I know broken record, but you had to get literally hundreds of things right to get to that point. It's just, you didn't get the 101 or the 201 or the 301 step right, which was getting the shot accurate or whatever. And so, man, what an awesome story. You guys showed that you belong there. You cut, you get by getting those shot opportunities, you made the most of it. I like what Jake said there. I'm here to hunt. You know, I'm not here to be getting back to camp and boiling up some mountain house. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's, 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 it is a hunting trip. You put in the miles, you sweated it out. You hauled in your water every day. You walked back in the dark, which is not comfortable for a lot of people, especially yeah. in an unfamiliar country. You know, you did all those things and, uh, you know, I'm proud to know you guys as, as uh, fellow hunters and, and it's inspiring to me, you know, I want to go out there and try mm-hmm. this, you know, and, yep. and, and it's really, really cool. And, and I will say, I we're kind of wrapping things up here a little bit, but just, uh, can't say enough about that effort that Jake put into it and the quality of hunt that we had because of how well we worked together as a team. Right. I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said about that. I mean, when you're planning these kind of hunts mm-hmm. and you're, picking you know potential hunting partners that you might be going with it's challenging you know when you're out there you're hot you're tired you're cold you're hungry you're getting cranky you you missed a deer you had a blown stock whatever i mean you got to have the right partner if you're going to be able to stay keep your mind in the game stay motivated stay optimistic and uh stay encouraged like you've got to have somebody that you can trust and, and lean on for some of that support. Cause there's going to be a, at some point in the trip, you're going to need somebody to, you know, to kind of lean on a little bit for that. Oh, support. absolutely. And, uh, you don't, you definitely don't want some partners to be like, yeah, you know, you, what were you thinking? Like you blew yeah. it. Like, yeah. You yeah. can't have somebody like that. And, and it's gotta be somebody, somebody you're compatible with, you mm-hmm. know, can have, we spent, we were together 24 seven for the entire week mm-hmm. and yep. we drove, 14, 15 hours out there talking the whole way. And then we still drove, you know, the 14, 15 hours back home. Gary drove 14 hours there and back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yep. I mean, I think at the end of the trip, I was probably in Jake's driveway for another half an hour, 45 <laughs> at minutes. Least, like yeah. after we had finished, you know, separating our gear out and like getting ready for me to head the rest of the way home. I mean, just saying that as a testament to the friendship we have and the quality mm-hmm. of hunt yeah. that we had and, we weren't ready to say bye to each other, you know, yeah, not see right. each other for a long time. Like mm-hmm. yep. and that, that to me was a big part of what made this hunt a tremendous success. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well said. Yeah, for sure. Any concluders there, Jake? Yeah, no, I was going to say the same thing Garrett said. Uh, we just found that we're great hunting partners and we'd love to do something like that again. Um, yeah, very similar in hunting styles. And yeah, I think, uh, if one of us would have said, oh, let's go grab a burger, we'll probably would have caved, but we didn't let each other say that. Yeah, we stayed strong. <laughs> we were on our way back Yeah, home. our way home, we feasted a little bit, but... Yeah. That's, what, that's, um, that's part of the fun, though, too, you know? Yeah. When you get back to that first hotel, and you get a shower, finally, or you get a you get a, you get a, a, a real restaurant, that's, mm-hmm. that's part of the fun, you know? Yeah. And hunting brings people together, right? Mm-hmm. That's what you guys are talking about there. We say it all the time on the podcast. Hunting brings people together. If more people in our country could hunt, uh, then I think we would have a lot less 
social issues dominating the news and and clouding everybody's view of how the world is going right now you know people getting into those experiences and sharing them with other people is uh one of the best ways to bring people Mm -hmm. together in my opinion and i'm I'll go to the grave saying that, Mm -hmm. but yeah, awesome story. Great hunt. Um, makes me think you need to talk to Alex Gruen. If you yourself are looking at doing a, uh, hunt that is out of your comfort zone, you want to go to another state like, uh, Jake and Fike did. Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe you want to go out West. Maybe you want to go, uh, somewhere up in new England, or maybe you want to get after some Osceola's down in Florida, or maybe even want to, uh, you know, just hunt whitetails here in the Midwest and you're not from around here. And uh, whatever it is, Alex can help you. Uh, go to eastwesthunts.com. Tell Alex I sent you by using the promo code FIRSTGEN10. Save yourself 10% and put that money back into your hunt in some way. Update your gear um, or maybe uh, take the money that you save there and roll it over to our presenting sponsor of the podcast, Spartan Forge. Spartan Forge is the best whitetail app you can have on your phone it's got the mapping it's got weather data it's got historical data and the best part is it's got deer behavior prediction data that is scientifically based not just some guy taking notes in his deer hunting journal and applying them to uh, uh, an app it is based off of radio collar data from deer all over the country and uh, is applied to your exact neck of the woods. You can figure out what the deer are doing based on the conditions of each day, each hour even. And uh, then you can make your decisions for when you want to do that after work hunt, when you're going to burn those brownie points, maybe uh, get your wife a little cranky at you for hunting too much or your husband, (laughs) boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever. And uh, use use that app to help you prioritize that time. Uh, so go to uh, uh, my link tree on my Instagram profile. You will find a link there for Spartan Forge. Jump on with them. Again, big thank you to them for being the presenting sponsor of the First Gen Hunter Podcast. And a big thank you to all of you for listening. We do it for you. We stay up late having these rambling conversations about some of our best days in the woods or in the prairies or wherever it is we are because we want to inspire you to do the same thing. Please show your thanks to us by giving us a five-star review if you feel so compelled on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. That helps other people say, hey, that's a legit hunting podcast. I'm going to give it a listen. And uh, that's a big thank you to us. We want to spread the good news on hunting that way. Well, thank you so much, Jake and Fike, for jumping on for this episode. And until next time, everyone, take care and take someone hunting.